1: Hi, this is Steve. As cinephiles, we all have our list of great filmmakers. Maybe yours has Kurosawa, Wells, and Stanley Kubrick. Or maybe your tastes tend more towards Quentin Tarantino, Spike Lee, or the Coen brothers. And of course, there's always Alfred Hitchcock, David Lean, John Ford, and don't forget Steven Spielberg. My guess is we could all have long, intense discussions about that list, but there's one filmmaker who almost never even comes up, despite the fact that, in my opinion, he has made some of the most difficult, ambitious, complicated, and beautiful films in the history of the art form. That man is Ken Burns, and his films like Jazz, Baseball, The Unforgivable Blackness, and the incredibly profound, moving, and multi-layered exploration of the Vietnam War are more than just television events. They are enduring documents of the American experience. For me, this is the art and craft of filmmaking at its highest level, and just because these projects are documentaries made for the small screen does not in any way detract from the achievement of the director. Of course, the project that really began it all was Ken Burns' nine-part, 11-hour exploration into what is arguably the most important, consequential, and shattering event in American history, the Civil War. This is, without question, a magnificent piece of filmmaking. Engrossing, challenging, thought-provoking, and deeply moving. The Civil War is a master class of documentary film and a must-see for any cinephile. So if you haven't seen The Civil War, the easiest place to find it is on our website cinephiles.net where I highly recommend the beautifully remastered Blu-ray. John and I are both huge fans of this film and I believe it has so much to say, not only about America's past, but about its present and possibly even its future. So. That's part one of Ken Burns' The Civil War this Friday on The Cinephiles. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. And John, this film has a lot of history. Yeah. This is big history. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California.
2: Hello, everyone. My name is John Rocha. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, writer, producer, and host over a collider video. and a massive fan of this film that we're talk- going to talk about, and a massive time of fan of this time period in American history. So uh, it, the Civil War, and we are
1: doing something really different, and yeah. it's gonna—I don't know how, quite how this is gonna go. But we're spreading our
2: wings a little, Steve.
1: You know, we talked. You and I have talked about this film for years, oh, yeah. and you, I think, had put on Twitter that you had watched it again recently, yeah. and and someone—I think someone—wrote like, "You ever gonna do this for the cinephiles?" And I'm like, "Maybe." So it. we have moved out of the realm of the theatrical release. Yeah, we have moved on to television. And we have moved from our normal—I think our longest previous movie was probably *Lawrence of Arabia* at three hours and forty-five minutes—into *Ken Burns's The Civil War* at eleven hours and twenty minutes.
2: Yeah, this is going to be a forty-five-hour podcast. Yeah. I really
1: I hope people yeah. strap in. <laughs> oh no, no, no. I mean, normally our podcasts tend to be around the length of the movie, sure-ish. Yeah. Sometimes when they're really, you know, *Citizen Kane* obviously was probably twice as long as the movie, right? But, but mostly it's that. We're not going to do 11 hours and 20 minutes on this. No. Um, So I think this, in terms of its format, we're going to be a little bit different. But I think you and I both have strong feelings about this. And I'm telling you, watching it again has a lot to say about where we are
2: today. Absolutely. You know, this stuff is still here. A lot of lessons that we still are having to learn over and over again, every generation, every... I don't know. Every 25 years, we seem to think we're past something and it all comes back, which makes me wonder if we are ever destined to move past certain things and only get incrementally better uh, at best.
1: I mean, several people, including Ken Burns and Shelby yeah. Foot in the documentary, and, yeah. you know, say the Civil War is the most important event in American history. And I think it is. And I think. I think this is going to be, you know, I believe that slavery is the great original sin of America. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're never going to fully get away from the consequences of that and of the Civil War.
2: Yeah, but I think that's what the documentary is so great at is it shows you such a well-rounded point of view about everything that was going on that uh, contributed to the cause of the Civil War carried the civil war on for so many years and at the end uh, what the consequences were what the price we had to pay as a nation was and uh, why these wounds are still somewhat unhealed and willingly so in some areas and unwillingly so in others there's an image that just occurred to me that Mm.
1: is that it's just a weird thing to bring up but uh, there are a couple of diseases, scurvy being one, where yeah. if you have it, it will open up old wounds. Yeah. And that something that had been healed forever will suddenly, the wound will just open up again. Mm-hmm. Even if the scar tissue is you know sealed over it, 20 years after you have it, if you have scurvy or malnutrition or diabetes, the wound will open up. Yeah. And I think that's what the Civil War is for us. Yeah. I think we think it's healed. We think we've made huge progress. And then all of a sudden... Mm. When the when the body politic is not healthy, that wound opens up again.
2: Yeah, and just like any great film, in that yeah. this Civil War is full of rich characters. Oh yeah, plots, twists and turn, plot twists and turns, uh, things you don't see coming. Frustration with yep. characters, um, and then finally, almost near the end, when you've almost given up hope, something comes in at the end to save the day to a degree. Uh, and it's, fan- it's fascinating what Burns was able to do with this. And before our fans get too insane, yes, we just did Con Air, and yes, we're rolling into the Civil War, we're just spreading our wings a little bit, and having a little fun with the show, and we'll be back to great classic films soon enough. But I think this one certainly qualifies, Steve, as great and classic.
1: I, for me, it is the greatest documentary ever made. Hands down, yeah, for me now Hands down. that I've ever seen. I haven't seen every documentary, sure, sure, sure. but like
2: this. Com- well, let me ask you this question. Yeah, when did you first come to it? Uh I think I came to it later, after it had already screened the first time, and I think because people had written reviews and talked glowingly about it, and I'm such a massive historical buff, I was like a hawk, right, waiting for them to show that it again. And I happened to watch it during a pledge drive, which means I had to sit through that insufferable stuff that sometimes for me is. For me is. I know for other people, uh, I get it. I don't know a lot of people that really love watching the pledge drive. (laughs) That's true. So for me, it's tough. And I respect it. And I get it because, you know, that's how they fund the stuff that they do and keep going as a a thing. But, you know, uh, but I remember just watching it and being engrossed, just engrossed uh, in it. And I remember recording it on VHS on the nights that I was working. So I could come home and watch it in the morning before I went back to work again in the next day. It was just an obsession of mine to finish it. And when it was done, I was a completely different person. Like just completely different from understanding the reality of what that time period was and the people involved. in. And one last thing, Steve, you know, you can read everything you want in a book. There's something about a documentary that brings these characters to life that for you, you have to carry with you then.
1: Well, particularly a documentary made by a master filmmaker like Ken Burns. I mean, the way the the voices and the sound and the photographs and there's just so much richness here. Um, For me, I saw it uh, sitting in my parents' family room. When it first came out, mm. I remember the next time it came on that I programmed my parents VCR in order to record it <laughs> I watched it many many times uh, since then I think before, before we got on the mic, I think you said you probably watched it 10 times
2: at least all the way through 10 times.
1: Yeah me too me too I mm-hmm. think I, I come back to it every couple of years and it never ceases to just suck me in yeah and, and just you know for scale, now, obviously, the world of television is very different today than it was in 1990 when this came out. But when this came out, 39 million people watched it. For for comparison, uh, uh, the Game of Thrones uh, finale had 18.4 million people. Yeah. You know, now we, we live in a different TV world where we're so much more split up over all these different networks and streaming services and stuff. But still, that's almost 40 million Americans. That's like uh, one in... Five of the Americans, a number of Americans at that time watched this the first time it aired on PBS. It was the, it's still the most successful thing ever to air on PBS. I mean, that's just for a, for an 11 hour and 20 minute
2: long historical documentary, mm-hmm. that's just an astounding number. Yeah. And I'm incredibly glad that it's so revered and beloved that Ken Burns and the people at PBS went back and remastered it in mm-hmm. HD. So that you can really appreciate it all over again in a very clear, beautiful picture. I mean, beautiful pictures. That's well, all.
1: And it looks gorgeous. I mean, yeah, like, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, like, I have the Blu ray sitting right there. Yeah. And, and you know. particularly with the, the, you know, this is a movie largely about looking at old photographs. Mm-hmm. And the every bit of resolution helps yeah. as you're
2: looking into the eyes of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, it, it just. Well, the wrinkles on the slaves yeah. and the, the lashes and the uh, all of it. It brings yes. it so viscerally
1: back to life. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Ken Burns. Uh, he's born in Brooklyn in 1953. His mom died when he was a kid from breast cancer. Mm. And that was obviously a transformative moment. He, in his life, he was an obsessive reader. Shocking.
3: <laughs> Read
1: the encyclopedia cover to cover. You know, this is the kind of guy... And if you ever listen, I'm sure you've heard interviews with him. He is one of the most articulate and erudite and brilliant and thoughtful person you will ever hear interviewed. He is so fascinating to listen to. He looked until... Really, until he was probably 40, like he was about 12 years old. <laughs> so people didn't always give him that much respect. But he, like a lot of guys we talked about, like Steven Spielberg and the Cohn brothers, he got that 8 millimeter camera when he was a teenager yeah. and obsessively started making films. He started, first thing he did was make a documentary about a factory in Ann Arbor when he was a teenager. Wow. You know, went off to be a cameraman for the BBC, did a bunch of shorts, and then his first documentary was uh, Brooklyn Bridge, based on the David McCullough book uh, Mm -hmm. that was on PBS, which is a fantastic documentary. And even though it's his very first one, you can see the seeds of the Civil War in terms of the technique, the style. It's all right there.
2: Does David McCullough narrate that one as well? I
1: think so, although I haven't seen it in a long time. But I think he does. And David McCullough, who's the narrator on the Civil War, amazing.
2: As a voiceover guy, you hear certain voices, and you're just like, man. A: I wish I had that voice. And B: What a command he yeah. has of that voice to bring this documentary to life.
1: So so before he does Brooklyn Bridge, he does a bunch of other, you know, 1-hour-ish documentaries for PBS. There's Huey Long, The Shakers, Congress and Statue of Liberty, and what he says is that All of these are kind of around the Civil War. The guy who designed the Brooklyn Bridge learned his trade as an engineer in the Civil War. The Congress, you know, he actually has parts of the Civil War happen when Congress, when there are actually two Congresses in the United States. The Statue of Liberty was originally intended as a gift, which I never knew, for uh, Mary Lincoln. Mm Mm-hmm. To, to to say, we're sorry about Abe. And then it took 25 years for them to actually, for the French to actually give it to the United States. Right. So it's connected to the Civil War. You know, there's so much. And so, and then he is one morning, uh, Christmas morning, reading The Killer Angels, which is the book that yeah. Gettysburg is based on. I
2: think of Michael Schar. Is, uh, Michael Schar. Yeah.
1: Um. And he suddenly goes, I want to do a documentary about the Civil War. And he goes to his dad and says, Dad, I've decided my next documentary is going to be about the Savoir, and this is 1983, 1984. And his dad says, well, which part do you want to do? And he says, all of it. <laughs> and his dad and everybody else who he said this to yeah. goes, you're insane.
2: Yeah, It's a monumental undertaking. It is so
1: big. And, and and as a person who's edited a couple of documentaries, like I know how much is on the cutting room floor. Like right. like, like for for my, like my first doc, so my first documentary, which was the first Great White Shark one, they handed me a box of 240 hours of footage. And I had to make an hour out of that. <laughs> so 240 hours, I had to tr- figure out an hour in there. And when you have that, like um, if, if you figure that to log and capture tape, which is what we used to do, it takes two to three times the amount of time. So that means I had, it took at least 500 hours of work for me to just get all the footage into the computer. Yeah. Well, so that means I worked for months and months before I'd ever cut anything. Th- that project, which took me about nine months to to make, yeah. that has no comparison to the Civil War. Right? Like, mine was a couple of guys going out on a boat to swim with some sharks. Yeah. I mean, like, the scale of this undertaking is ridiculous.
2: Yeah, and this isn't a thing that people did. You know? Yeah. No. I mean Shoah, I don't know how many I think hours that's a lot of hours Shoah. Yeah, Shoah. And I think that's the my first exposure to a long right. documentary was Shoah. And then this came along and at a time when people weren't doing documentaries like this because it wasn't like the documentary art form was like this great financial, you know, revenue making thing. People didn't pursue documentaries at this kind of size and this kind of scope and his desire to do it and his ability to do it more than anything else uh, really needs to be lauded because this could have easily been uh, just fumbled at the at the goal, oh, yeah, and people wouldn't have felt as powerful well,
1: about it. I mean, first of all, think about just the scale of it is huge, and then think about the fact that this is a controversial and difficult yes. and painful topic. So it's not just like, just it's huge, but it's like, you got to do this right. You got to walk the tightrope to do it. And even in the process of, he's got to raise the money first. Right. So he goes around with his huge, like four inch thick proposal of pages and pages <laughs> of all the things he wants to do and learns very quickly, that's not the way to raise money because no <laughs> one wants to look at that. So he turns, turns it down to like 15 or 20 pages and still struggling to raise money. And when they, when they're making it, by the way, the original vision is going to be five hours. It's going mm. to be one hour for each year. Right. And basically, their footage was so good, and the story was so good, it kept getting bigger and bigger, yeah. which meant that they had to raise more money. And what finally sort of sold it, it sounds like, was a line that came from Shelby Foote, who's one of the main interviewers in the show, Another great which voice. was that before the Civil War, people would say the United States are doing something. Because states is plural. Right. So you'd say the United States are. And after the Civil War, people said the United States is. Hmm. And the, the story is taking us from an R to an is. And once he started pitching that to General Motors and Bank of America and the big supporters, they went, okay. Yeah. And that's how he finally raised the money.
2: It's the simplest of things sometimes. that unlocks it all. Well, that is such a profound
1: statement. An R to an is. Yeah. Although today, we're feeling a lot more like an R, <laughs> You know? Because yeah. there's a lot of people that says, this is America, and that's not America. Right. Whichever way you want to say that.
2: Or, that's an American, this isn't an American. Yep. Right? This is a patriot, this is not a patriot. Yeah. Yeah? Going from an is
1: back to an are. Um, yeah. Um, Would you like to get into this 11-hour movie? Well, here we go. <laughs> Let me put on my reenactment outfit. Let's I- get to it. <laughs> <laughs> th- I, I like that you chose to be a blue brigadier general. <laughs> I think you. that's really that's a good uniform Thank for you.
2: you. How about my mustache? Do you like
1: it? My it's like, do you like my extremely long Civil War? What's weird to me, by the way, <laughs> this is a total digression. <laughs> but who would have thought that? All, <clears throat> who would have thought that all these ridiculous facial hairs were going to come back? Oh
2: my god! Yeah,
1: like I know people that have like the the Longstreet beard. Tim, yeah, Tim has that insane beard. Yeah. It's madness. All, all sorts of people who have hair like, and weird mustaches, and I haven't seen the Ambrose Burnside sideburns, but I'm sure they're around. Oh, they, somebody making a cocktail right now right that now, sideburn.
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: but we digress. Yeah, but we digress. Which is really dangerous. <laughs> We're going to get into an 11-hour movie. <laughs> uh,
2: no offense to anyone that has these mustaches or beards. You're fine, fine people. Yes, you And are. true Americans. Yeah, and true Americans. Thanks for supporting
1: the show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the opening of this movie is one of the greatest openings in anything ever. Which is, and you think about, and, and again, I just want to point out, like, particularly with a documentary, like, if you have a narrative script, well, the script starts at the beginning. Yeah. If you have a documentary, you could start it anywhere. You could start it at the end, in the middle. You could start it uh, 300 years ago. You could start it with the first slave ship. You could start it with the Declaration of Independence. You could start it at, you know, 75 years after the war. You could start it in the middle of the Battle of Gettysburg. You could start it anywhere. And so choosing how to start it, and I think this start is amazing.
4: By the summer of 1861, Wilmer McLean had had enough. Two great armies were converging on his farm what would be the first major battle of the Civil War, Bull Run, or Manassas as the Confederates called it, would soon rage across the aging Virginians' farm, a Union shell going so far as to explode in the summer kitchen. Now, McLean moved his family away from Manassas, far south and west of Richmond, out of harm's way, he prayed, to a dusty little crossroads called Appomattox Courthouse. And it was there in his living room three and a half years later that Lee surrendered to Grant. And Wilmer McLean could rightfully say that the war began in my front yard and ended in my front parlor.
2: It's so great.
4: And you cue music.
2: Yeah.
1: And that, I think, is so profound, like, like frames what the whole movie is going to be. It's smallness, the, mm-hmm. that this is a family fighting with itself. That it is strange and filled with coincidences and very personal, I think.
2: Yeah. You know? And that this war has a sense of providence all around it Mm. through the progression. Whether you believe or not, it feels like it has a sense of providence. I mean, the fact that it begins and ends in this man's yard and in parlor is mind-blowing. That Of the... The, the odds of that must be astronomical to consider. Well, and there's so many things like that
1: of, you know, literally what bro- I mean. brother fighting brother and yeah. friend fighting friend and
2: coincidences of where people ended up and yeah. these strange yeah. connections throughout. I do want to say one thing, Steve, for me growing up in Virginia. It, oh, yeah. Uh, it was, I mean, all these things you talk about for me, were cities before, or places before I understood what they were. Sure. You know, Bull Run, Manassas, Appomattox. And my mom, my sister lives in Manassas. I mean, like you would drive the wilderness. You would drive through wow. these places that were battlefields, and in your mind, it never would occur to you until you learned about the Civil War and learned about the battlefields. And this documentary just changed, like I said, changed me as a person, but changed my perception of my own state that I grew up in. Yeah. And how essential it was to everything the Civil War was all about, especially because Robert E. Lee came from Virginia, and yet Virginia always struggled whether it was South or North. Right, it was that kind of middle. It's in the middle. Yeah, yeah, middle place, and so it was. It's always been a struggle. And growing up, you knew there were northern there was northern Northern Virginia and Southern Virginia, and so I I love the documentary for bringing those places to life for me. And, and and right after he tells this story we go right into that music which is just
1: haunting mm-hmm. and beautiful uh, the composer is Jay Unger and it I mean I'm, I'm hearing it right now yeah. it is so lovely and powerful and it has a slow cadence that kind of sets you up for sort of the melancholy and the beauty of what we're gonna get into that
2: violin yeah, yeah. it's so it's so
1: good yeah um, and then we hear this thing that we're going to hear. There are these refrains that are going to kind of come back. And one of them is this you know, the Civil War was fought in 10,000
4: places. The Civil War was fought in 10,000 places, from Valverde, New Mexico, and Tullahoma, Tennessee, to St. Albans, Vermont, and Fernandina on the Florida coast. More than 3 million Americans fought in it, and over 600,000 men. of the population died in it. American homes became headquarters. American churches and schoolhouses sheltered the dying. And huge foraging armies swept across American farms and burned American towns. Americans slaughtered one another wholesale, here, in America in their own cornfields and peach orchards, along familiar roads and by waters with old American names. In two days at Shiloh, on the banks of the Tennessee, more American men fell than in all previous American wars combined. At Cold Harbor, 7,000 Americans fell in 20 minutes.
1: I really want to point out the genius of Ken Burns' filmmaking technique. And, and like most really good technique, you don't see it. You know, you're not supposed to notice what he does. Right. And one of the things he does now, he's going to approach things from a different direction, all sorts of different times. And now he's going to introduce all these characters, but not give their names. So you hear about this guy who was a failure in everything except marriage and war. And then you hear about this uh, lawyer from Illinois and this eccentric student of theology who rode into battle holding one hand up or this professor from Maine. Mm. And you hear these people. And, of course, from the beginning, some of us know, okay, that's going to be Lincoln or this is going to be Robert E. Lee. But you don't know who Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain is yet. You don't know. And and so these people are going to take on significance. And he's just planting them with you a little bit and making you want to find out more about them. And then there's this moment where, again, David McCullough and his narration says, between 1861 and 1865, Americans killed each other in great numbers, if only to become the kind of country that couldn't conceive how such a thing was possible. The writing in this film is magnificent. Oh, yeah. And that's um, Ken Burns, his brother Rick Burns. And it sounds like Jeffrey Ward is the, really the main writer. Mm. And again, what an undertaking
2: yeah. to try to figure out how to do this. We have all these things together in a cohesive yeah. manner.
1: Well, and I, I'd be very curious, you know, the, Ken Burns is one of the people I'd love to sit down and have a conversation. Oh, yeah. Or have him on the cinephile. Hey, You think he would come on to talk about like, Transformers or something like that? Maybe Dumb and Dumber. Dumb.
3: <laughs> 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 oh, Wouldn't it be amazing
1: <laughs> if that was his guilty pleasure? That's his guilty pleasure. Oh, no, my God. It Ken, has to be. if you're listening to the cinephiles <laughs> and you want to talk Dumb and Dumber, a movie which I don't really want to talk yeah, about, yeah, yeah. but I, I mean, would. That's For right. Ken Burns, I would. Anytime. But... Uh, the process of docu- – my get- I know how I've done it, which I'm not – I don't mean to make any kinds of comparisons at all <laughs> to the greatest documentary. I just – it's this is – with my experience, is like you edit something and you have a quote that you edit in the quote mm. and then you write something and then you make a change and then you have to change the writing to fit the new change. And then you put in a different quote and then you change the writing again. So there's a constant back and forth between the editorial process and the writing process mm. to kind of lock in – you know, and then you'll have kind of a section that works well, and then you have to figure out, oh, how can I use David McCullough to bridge to the next section, or what quote will bridge, and it's just a... Cu- and they're cutting this on film. Yeah. I didn't cut on film. <laughs> I can't imagine cutting a documentary like this on film. Yeah. And then we see, which we see throughout the film at really interesting times, film from the 75th anniversary of Gettysburg.
2: Ah, uh, yeah. And these old men. And, and it's just, just... Which is very interesting in the time. Timeliness of us talking about this, Steve, because we just had the 75th anniversary of D Day, right? Isn't right, that right. So, oh, uh, you're right. 70th or 70, 70s? 75th. 75th? Yeah, it's 44. So, yeah. yeah, 75th. Okay, yeah, 75th uh celebration of D Day. And how many of those men are still alive and showed up at the ceremony uh who were in their 80s or 90s and were, you know, honored? And you saw them, you heard them. CNN did pieces on them. And other out- outlets as well, and even French President Macron gave one of the uh, survivors of D-Day um, the highest order that you can receive as a civilian in French, in France, right? right. In France. So I mean, like, it's so kind of interesting that we're talking about it now with this. Game.
1: Well, and there
3: was
2: you saw the 95-year-old who jumped out of a plane. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. But
1: what we what's weird to me, and partially, partially it's because I'm 50, so I'm getting older. Mm. Um, is that Time as you grow older compresses in this weird way. Oh, yeah. And so, like, I go, okay, it's 75 years since D Day. D Day to me seems, although it's old, mm. like history in my world. Right. You know, like I had my I had uh, relatives who fought in World War II. Mm. I met many people. I met Holocaust survivors. I like those are people that are real in right. my life. Right. The Civil War was not like this. I never met anyone who fought in the Civil War. Right. Right. You know, my great grandfather. He was born in 1885. I think that's so. That's the oldest person Ooh. who I knew. You know, um, but but thinking about it now, it's like okay, 1938. That was the 75th anniversary of Gettysburg. Right. And those old guys are walking around. That's not that long ago. Yeah. You know, so my grandparents easily could have known people who had fought Mm. in the Civil War. Mm. You know, that's just so, and suddenly it feels much closer, which I think is part of why he includes them in this moment at the beginning of the documentary to go, no, no, these are real people. Like these aren't just, you know, pictures on a wall of ancient history. They're real, living, breathing people. And includes video.
2: That's important. Very important. Makes them contemporary in some way in your head.
5: The Civil War defined us as what we are and it opened us to being what we became, uh, good and bad things. Shelby Foote. It, it is very necessary if you're going to understand the American character in the 20th century to learn about this enormous catastrophe of the mid-19th century. It was the, 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 the crossroads of our being and it was a hell of a crossroads.
1: It's one of the most remarkable uh,
5: interviews I've ever. Oh seen.
1: yeah, and and so they so he did um, the Huey Long documentary mm. w- and the book about uh, All the King's Men is written by Robert Penn Warren and so he was still alive mm-hmm. and as Ken's starting up on the Civil War in eighty three I think or eighty four because it took almost six years to make
3: mm-hmm.
1: Robert Penn Warren says oh if you're going to do the Civil War you got to talk to my friend Shelby Foot. So they go, okay, I guess. You know, They're right at the very beginning. I think it's one of the first interviews they shot. They didn't know much about him. They had re- He's written uh, several books on the Civil War. Right. I read one of them. It was hard. It's extensive, his books. And he shows up uh, to do the interview. He wa- he says he wasn't very prepared. So he kind of just threw out, like, Grant. And then Shelby Foote would talk about Grant. Lee, you talk about Lee. Gettysburg, you talk about Gettysburg. And they rolled an hour of film on him. And they get back in the car to leave and they go, he and his brother, and they go, That wasn't very good, was it?
3: Hmm.
1: Yeah, it's kind of boring. He speaks really slowly. I don't think that's gonna be very good. They get the film developed, they get back to the editing room, they watch the interview, and they go, Holy shit. <laughs> and it happens sometimes. Yeah. You know, like and they and here's what they said, and I totally agree with this ratio. They said that normally when you do an interview for a documentary, you expect that maybe ten percent is gonna be useful. That's totally bears out in my experience. About ten mm-hmm. percent. They said 85-90% of Shelby Foot was wow. Like just and and they basically almost everything they shot with him is actually in the movie. Huh. Because he's so great. Yeah. And he becomes just the heart of the film, I think. Yep. Yeah.
5: It was because we failed to do the thing we really have a genius for, which is compromise. Americans like to think of themselves as uncompromising. Our true genius is for compromise. Our whole government's founded on it, and it failed.
1: We meet uh, Barbara Field, who is an African-American historian, who says amazing things, and what, what she says that's so interesting is that, yes, this is a, a war based on politics, and yes, it's about geography and weapons, and, but it's about something higher.
6: For me, the picture of the Civil War as a historic phenomenon is not on the battlefield. It's not about weapons. It's not about soldiers except to the extent that weapons and soldiers at that crucial moment joined a discussion about something higher, about humanity, about human dignity, about human freedom.
1: And and this is this framing and complexity that we're going to see Ken Burns deal with throughout.
2: Yeah, which I think is essential to understanding the war as a whole. It's easy to slide into just slavery or just states' rights. It was about
0: so much more. Uh, as wars usually are.
1: So I've been thinking about this question a lot because we seem to be re-prosecuting again, well, what was the Civil War really about? Yeah, And there's a moment in The Simpsons that I love, mm-hmm. um, which is that Apu is getting his uh, citizenship test and he, they're asking him questions and they say, can you tell us the cause of the Civil War? And
7: Apu says... Actually, there were numerous causes aside from the obvious schism between abolitionists and anti-abolitionists. Economic factors, both domestic and international, played a significant hey, hey, yeah. Just, just say slavery. Slavery, it is, sir. That's
1: <laughs> um, <coughs> true. Um, well, it, here's here's what I've come to to think about this: the root basic cause is slavery. Right. But what is understood as the cause for people fighting the war, why individual people were fighting, yeah. becomes much more complex. Mm-hmm. You know, because there are people fighting in the South who didn't own slaves, right? That are that some of them are against slavery. They're fighting for their state's rights. There are people fighting for economic freedom. There are people in the North that are fighting against traitors, yeah. But actually, don't care at all about slavery. In fact, Lincoln was in this position of not being able to make it about slavery because yeah. he might. That might have everyone revolt at certain points, mm-hmm. and then it. But it is, but certainly it is at its heart.
7: And what Lincoln said is, "If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we will live forever, or die by suicide."
2: He knew, of course. Yeah, uh, and he had to know, and the thing, and he had to present it in a way that was palatable. I think that's what you come out of this documentary as well with a. How could I say this? A more complete understanding of Abraham Lincoln. He is not the angel people turn him into, nor is he the devil that the South tried to turn him into. He is an incredibly intelligent, pragmatic man and probably the right president at the right time to ensure the survival of our nation as a unified country. He did massage the rules. He did take a couple of shortcuts And he also understood how to work a room or how to present an argument in a certain way to certain people to get them on his side so that he could go forward with what he thought was best for the country. He literally was the father of the nation. Yes, I know Washington gets that, but it's really Lincoln here. Washington is the dad at birth. Lincoln is your dad at your teenage teenage years. years. Yeah, teenage years going into college. Yeah, He shapes you. Well, I think there's a lot of
1: similarities with Washington and Lincoln in that they were both pragmatists, Mm -hmm. but they also both had an eye for the future and what was really important at a given moment. Have you read um, Team of Rivals, by the way? Yes, of course. Doris Kearns Grudlin. That's a fantastic
2: book. That book is so powerful. It's literally on my nightstand. In every nightstand I've ever had in my life, that has always been there to teach me how to work with people who don't agree with me. Well, because this is the thing with Lincoln is like, so, and I think
1: one of the interesting things is his wife's family, they were slave owners in the family. And so he, from right then, from his marriage, from his personal life is, I need to deal with these people and I need to find a way to do it, it, and if I attack them then I cannot have this family. Right. And that metaphorically is exactly what he is talking about as he, in a, in the eighteen late 1850s mm-hmm. and, and when he runs for president, is that he detested slavery. Mm-hmm. He thought it was terrible, but he also knew that he couldn't fight that battle. And so he wanted to restrict its growth. He wanted to reduce it, but he actually was not
2: a vocal abolitionist no. at the beginning at all. And he said, I think there's a quote, and I think Fields says it. He says, like,
7: My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that.
1: There's no question in my mind that he thought slavery was a great evil. Of course, um, yes. I, and this is something the, you know, the, that's the thing about the Team of Rivals book is, you know, for those of you who don't know, there were a bunch of people that were running against him for president that really hated him, and he. The only reason he got uh, nominated by the Republicans is really that. There was so much enmity. He was like the guy in fourth place. Yeah, there was so much enmity between everybody else that finally everyone's like, "Well, we'll agree on Lincoln," (laughs) you know, because we can't do Seward or we can't do you know Salmon Chase or any of those guys. And that, what did he do? These people that had been bashing him throughout the election, he went. Uh, Seward, I want you to be my secretary of state. Simon Chase, I want you to be my secretary of the right. treasury. Yeah, Edward Stanton, who had been a lawyer who had mocked him when they were on a case together, he said, I want you to be my secretary of defense or of war at the time, it wasn't defense. Um, it's like, so he said, no, I want I want to work with the people that
2: are against me. Yeah. I mean, that he's a remarkable person. It takes a very strong constitution yeah. and belief in yourself to hire people who disagree with you or don't feel the same what you do. So that you can have a full understanding of your opinion before you make a decision. Well, and he's fantastic. He was happy being insulted
1: and vilified oh. and all those things for the if, as long as he was moving forward to the good. Right. You know, he didn't need credit. He didn't need people to. He's just like I need to do what's good. Yeah. Um, uh, we hear a little bit more about the world that's going on, including hearing from Morgan Freeman as Frederick Douglass. Yeah. The vo- the voices in this, and I'm not going to get them all. Yeah. But they're they're amazing.
6: When I remember that with the waters of her noblest rivers, the tears of my brethren are born to the ocean, disregarded and forgotten. That her most fertile fields drink daily of the warm blood of my outraged sisters. I am filled with unutterable loathing.
1: And then as we hear Frederick Douglass talk, we hear... Another of the light motifs, the pieces of music we'll hear over and over again and that is uh, the slave song, the the sort of spiritual song. Mm-hmm. these voices come up and you will hear it throughout the documentary and they're so powerful and this is the one where we hear kind of the history of slavery in America yeah.
4: No day ever dawns for the slave, a freed black man wrote, nor is it looked for. For the slave, it is all night, all night forever. Including photographs
1: The you'd already mentioned the guy who had been, you know, whipped severely. And he's kind of looking back at you and his eyes are just deep and penetrating. And Ken Burns makes you look at these photographs for a long, long time. It's to the point where this is actually called the Ken Burns effect, which is that you're pushing in or moving across or cutting in um, and studying these photographs in a way. Because the way that if you look at other documentaries or older documentaries, they go, okay, we want to tell you about this cannon. Here's a picture of the cannon. Okay, you saw it, and now we're moving on. Now I want to show you about this uh, soldier. Here's the soldier. What Ken Burns wants you to do is to look at it and look at it and study it. So he'll leave those pictures on much, much longer. What happens is... First you go, oh, there's, the, there's this uh, slave at an auction. And then as the camera moves in, you look at it more closely and you see things you didn't see before. You see their eyes, their facial expression. Yeah. And we had to talk about like how this was done because today how you would do it is you would scan the picture into a computer. So you would get a super high resolution version of that photograph. Mm-hmm. And now I can zoom in, move across, pull back. Anything I want to do, I could do because I have it in the computer. Right. That's not what he did. They didn't have computers like that then. They filmed them with a film camera. They spent weeks and weeks and weeks in the Library of Congress, and they would put the photograph up on on a board, and if they wanted the camera to pan left to right, they would slowly pan the camera left to right and film that. If they wanted the camera to, to dolly in, they would slowly dolly it in and film that. So they're just sitting with a still image, wow. moving the camera across, left to right, focusing on this section, on that section, cutting in, pulling back, like all those things, weeks after week after week, filming these photographs.
2: Yeah, I think it's brilliant because it's how your eye works. Yeah. So they shoot it like your eye would work if you were looking at this picture and studying it, right? They do the studying for you by presenting it there. And I think it's also important because it's his way of saying, you have to look at this. You have to come to terms with what this is. This is not some abstract concept called slavery. There was a real human cost to what we did. And look at the levels to which we will go as human beings to another race of human beings in the pursuit of an economy or agriculture.
1: There's an image, uh, and I don't even quite understand what it is. Where there was a man uh, with a thing around his neck, yeah. Like that's the one that sticks with me always. It it looks like it almost looks like a steel version of a cone you would put on Mm -hmm. a dog. Mm -hmm. And he's standing; he's very dignified in his posture. Proud, very proud, and he has this thing around his head that is so dehumanizing, and it looks horribly painful. Yeah, and and you don't know if that was put on yesterday or if he's been wearing that for five years and he's standing there and they, they cut to that picture. And and it it, just, as you say, Ken birds goes, look at this. Yeah. Look, and lets you, if it was only on screen for a second, you could go, okay, I don't have to feel anything, but because it's on screen for a long time, he becomes a human in a way that, you know, here's a photograph maybe from 1850. We don't know that this person who died long before any of us were born becomes really real to
2: you, Mm -hmm. you know, um and those were put on slaves so they could that would escape hmm. that had 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 escaped and it was to make it harder for them to escape something that heavy
5: you know what i'd rather do if i thought that i'd ever be a slave again i take a gun and just end it all right away because you're nothing but a dog
1: And they introduced the idea that slavery as like the, you know, the poison pill of America Mm -hmm. is, is in the constitution. And the fact Mm -hmm. that it sits in the constitution, you know, with these people that are worth three fifths of a human and that they are counted, but not counted is the, the, you know, as I said, the original sin of
4: America. By the time the nation was founded, slavery was dying in the North. There were doubts in the South, too, but few could conceive of any alternative. Thomas Jefferson of Virginia said maintaining slavery was like holding a wolf by the ears. You didn't like it, but you didn't dare let it go.
1: Always ironic when you're talking about Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Because you know what, dude? You did like it. Yeah. We're pretty sure we have a lot of evidence that you liked it. Mm-hmm. And you could—it's not that you didn't dare let it go. You didn't want to let it go. Right.
2: You know? And you slept with the wolf.
1: Yeah. One out of every seven Americans belonged to another American yep. at the time of the beginning of the Civil War. Oh my God. Yeah. It's so disgusting to me that there are people today saying, Oh, they liked being slaves. Oh, they had it pretty easy. Well, of course. I mean that that, that in this world, in this day, someone could make a statement like that.
2: It's the culture of hot takes that consumes our interactions now. What the fuck is a hot take? Well, I will. Can you exp- define it. For me? <laughs> sure. Because I hear.
1: I hear it all the time. Like on Twitter, like, "Hey, hot take." Blah blah hot, blah.
2: Hot take is a, is um, is a self described uh, controversial opinion about a that contradicts a universally held opinion um, by this by society. Hmm. So people who say Ishtar is not that bad of a movie, I'll tell you why. Hot take. Uh, you know any number of things, and you bring it to slavery, yes, some of them liked being slaves. That's a hot take because it's it's controversial. It's against what has been universally accepted by society, and you're supposed to be able to defend this point of view. Um, so that's what people call hot takes. And so people we are consumed by that because there's always someone on the internet writing some think piece about how some terrible film was actually not as bad as you think. Or th- defending it, or saying it's probably the best of the series when everyone has agreed that it's the worst. Someone will defend Kingdom of the Crystal Skull as the best Indiana Jones movie. Someone will, and claim it's a hot take. Okay. Well, I'm glad that you've given me this definition. I try to do my best, David McCullough. There, <laughs> you did a nice job.
1: <laughs> Mostly, I just when I see the words "hot take," I'm like, yeah. I don't, I don't really care. I don't want to hear about your hot takes. <laughs> um, we get into the question of abolition.
2: <laughs> but can I say one last thing about what you just said? Of course, sorry, Steve. We usually sit here, people saying all oh, they wanted to was, these are the ways that we mentally create, uh, rationalize, yes. rather, this thing that we did in our history that was so, rather than just accepting it, that it was a terrible thing that we did, and it was a time we didn't understand what we were doing, or maybe we did understand, and thank God we've moved past that, we have to find a way to forget, to like explain it away, or rationalize it away, which I think is horrible to the overall growth of the country, you know well it, it to me the big danger of it it's not
1: just that we're rationalizing this thing in history yeah it's that we're rationalizing our things today mm. you know what i mean big connection right because yeah. if you could say that well then yeah. then right now we're open up to do all sorts of things Oh, sure, of course. you know like the you know the first step whether it's you know name your horrible situation yeah if you take a group and you say that group is less than human well then it allows you to do a whole bunch of stuff exactly Um, And and again, it's why Ken Burns makes you look at those pictures for a long time. Mm -hmm. Because your ability, you know, if you you think about... What a slave owner in the pre-Civil War era had to do mentally hmm. to not see that these people that were around them all the time, raising their children, cooking their food, you know, you know, working in the fields, all that stuff, as human, yeah. they had to do a lot of mental gymnastics. Yes, to 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 sell themselves on the fact that this was okay. Yep, and not only okay, but worthy of defending with your life.
3: Yep,
2: that system, and humans have a history of doing that, yeah. regardless oh, yeah. of country regardless of uh, when in history, we have a tendency to do that as human beings to people we want to put into that category for our own purposes. Well,
1: this is the big lesson to me of all these things is not, oh, if I were on the Union side, what would I do? Mm. It's if I were on the Confederate side because the the reality is, is 95% of people tend to accept the worldview that they're raised in. Yes. If we were raised on a Confederate plantation... The odds are mm-hmm. you and I would accept that worldview. Right. Now, I would hope that we wouldn't. And I hope that you and I would be the ones that say, this is wrong and I'm going to fight against it. And right. there certainly were people like that. Sure. But the odds are we wouldn't. Right. And the odds are everybody listening to this program right now accepts the worldview that they're given. Mm. Unless you take some time and really look at
3: mm-hmm.
2: whatever that other side is. Explore your Do your own research. Yeah. Explore your own points of views. Maybe read a few hot takes. <laughs> oh, maybe come up with a few of your own. Um, so we
1: move into this <laughs> idea of abolition. Yeah. And we hear about Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, which I've read and it's sort of a fascinating yeah. book. Uh, the most successful book of all time for, you know, 100, 100 years or so. Insane. And then we hear about John Brown. And he is, they describe him as the meteor. Yeah. And The photos of him are, he is an intense looking dude. Fantastic. You know who he looks like, by the way? Who's that? Hoover. The guy that I've done the documentaries with has the same tall, thin, intense, gaunt, look crazy look in his eye. Yeah. Yeah. And John Brown knows that slavery is wrong. And so he goes down to, is it Harper's Ferry? Yeah, Harper's Ferry. And says, I'm going to go attack there and the slaves are going to rise up and we're going to start a revolution. With his sons. With his sons. (coughs) Yeah. It does not go the way he expects. No. And the military officer that captures him, Robert E. Lee. Yeah. And that and that at his, you know, he goes on he put is put on trial essentially for treason, and he is hung. And the at his hanging is Stonewall Jackson, who suit not yet named Stonewall, and uh John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. These again are these weird
2: coincidences throughout this story. So that's oh man Um, He was my favorite, by the way. Who? John Brown. Growing up, there was something about his face and his willingness to just confront the odds of the situation in his own small way. And look how it reverberated still or reverberates still through history. This futile attempt, but futile in the most noble way to try to stop something he thought was against God. God. And against man. You know what? what? Uh, I struggle with a lot and think about a lot in this
1: documentary. It's sort of a theme throughout for me is um, the complexity of humans in particular between their personal view of honor Mm. and what I think of their belief system and their bravery, confidence, valor, and competence. Because there are people in this – like, for instance – the beliefs of john brown i side with you're right the bravery is undeniable the foolishness and craziness is also undeniable sure there are other figures in the civil war who we'll get to who are unquestionably brilliant soldiers yeah and are living by a code of honor but that code of honor is despicable mm. you know what i mean so in their minds they're, they're doing everything they're doing for honor and they're mm clearly brave you can't say they're not but they're defending slavery you know and so it's like this puts me in and then there are people who are on my team you know uh that are doing terrible things yes in the name of the union right you know and so it's it's and i think again this is what you can get out of an 11 hour and 20 minute documentary that you can't get in a two-hour movie which is really think about these complicated people yeah Um, so it's, it's shortly, it's the 1860 election and Lincoln is running for president and things are going crazy starting with, you know, there's, we've been through bloody Kansas and we've been and the, one of the big questions is, will we let slavery expand? And, uh, there's literal violence on the floor of Congress and there is real talk of serious talk of secession. And that is the environment in which Lincoln is elected. And when he is elected, I think there are 33 States. And by the time he is inaugurated, they're 25. Yeah. I can't imagine being Abraham Lincoln showing up to be president
2: at this moment. Mm. You know? He wasn't the first choice, like you said, Steve. Yeah. Fourth down the list. Mm-hmm. Look what you inherit, a fractured country. And it's your job. And he's not like a long-serving congressman. No. Right? He was in Congress for a couple of years, lost yeah. a lost a bid
1: for the Senate, which made him famous because yep. he was all the Stephen Douglas debates. Um right. yeah, no, he, he was an unknown. And people like like Stanton who became the Secretary of War, he called him the original gorilla. You know, yeah. like he had it's so interesting. This was so profound in Team of Rivals, is people like Seward and Stanton, who totally disrespected Lincoln when they started. Yeah. Like at the end, Seward, who really felt he should be president. Yes. By the end, he goes, No, the right person was president. And I was I uh, you know, he, he was the greatest man I ever knew, yeah. and I was so blessed and to serve under him and to help him yeah. like that. And Stanton, the same thing. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Um, so secession is happening, but Lincoln is still trying to resolve it. And he says, "I think this is his first inaugural.
7: We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection." The mystic chords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature.
2: I think Sam Watterson does the voice of Lincoln. Sam Watterson does the voice for Lincoln. played him in Gore Vidal's Lincoln, that TV series. Oh, I've never seen that. Yeah, I did. It was all right. It wasn't great. It was all right.
1: I love Sam Watterson.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: And then Fort Sumter is attacked, and it's the beginning of the war. Yeah.
4: On the day Sumter fell, the regular army of the United States consisted of fewer than 17,000 men, most of whom were stationed in the far west. Only two of its generals had ever commanded an army in the field and both were long past their prime. Winfield Scott, the hero of the Mexican War, old fuss and feathers, was too fat even to mount a horse.
1: And whole towns enlisted. And a lot of people are enlisting because they think the war is going to be over really fast. Yeah. Um, and we meet a couple of people like Elijah Hunt Rose, who is a, a soldier of the Union Army, and we meet Sam Watkins, who is a soldier in the Confederate Army, and these are guys who are at like, Every major battle of the war. And they survived. And they survived and wrote these amazing accounts of all of it and amazing letters. And again, this is the thing Ken Burns does beautifully is we're going to know the big people like Lincoln and yeah, Grant yeah. and Lee, but we're also going to meet normal people. Another one is Mary Chestnut, who is a woman who is a diarist, yep. uh, who was in the Confederacy and was around, knew Jefferson Davis and was around for all sorts of things in the mm-hmm. South.
2: Well, also, once again, what he does really well to show both sides yeah. and may you make your decision. But he shows both sides. Absolutely. And I love that about this documentary.
1: Yeah, you in a very under-
2: human way. Yes, you understand yeah. the southern point of view, mm-hmm. and you understand the northern point of view, and then you understand the political point of view, and then the ground, on the ground, the soldiers, the, the people running the farmhouses, the pe- people like Mary Chestnut, the women who were at you know in the firing lane of some of these situations.
1: Well, and this goes back to the are and the is. Yes. Yeah of the United States because yeah. the idea and I was I've been thinking about this quite a bit is that like for Robert E Lee, he was the number 1 general in the United States army, Winfield Scott who was, you know, the yeah. big famous general of the Mexican-American War, who was an old fat guy at this point, yeah. said if you're going to give the army to anybody, the best guy is Robert E Lee. Lincoln offers him the job to run the whole Union army and he says, I cannot raise my hand against my state, which he calls his country, which is Virginia. Which is Virginia, mm-hmm. and I was th- and, and t- when I I remember first watching this and going, well, that sounds crazy, but then I was thinking about it and I was like, and we're right at a point where I hear people talking about California seceding. Yeah, you know, so let's say that California secedes over LGBT rights or climate change. Sure. Or let's say that um, Alabama secedes over uh, abortion. You know, or let's say, you know, there's other places that that for mm-hmm. different different reasons, there's been talk of, hey, I don't want to be in this country anymore, right? You know, and let's say that you you served in the military, yeah, and they said, okay, we're you're going to be in the army and you're going to go against California, who's just
2: seceded for things right. that I know you believe in,
1: right? Would you stay with the American Army and fight against California?
2: No, yeah, I would at I mean, if we're Separating out as a con- as into our own country and I believe that it's the right decision, then I have to honorably or dishonorably discharge myself from my service to that old country to be part of this new country that is in essence an extension of my old country.
1: Well, this is what's so you know, it's like I don't think you can look at the civil war and just go, Oh, they were traitors. No. I mean I, I don't think I mean we could certainly say that they did rebel, mm-hmm. but so did we against england right you know and if you read not the famous second line of the declaration of independence but the less famous first line which i don't actually have in front of me uh, and i can't quote exactly but it's basically that hey if you don't like the government you're under you have the right to leave like that's that's the very beginning of the declaration of independence is saying hey we have the right to govern ourselves Mm -hmm. and that is exactly what the south said when they seceded they said We have the right to... You know, we joined of our own free will into this uh, country. Right. We have the right to leave it. And Lincoln and the North said, you don't. You can't. You can't. And Lee says, well, I'm going to go and defend Virginia, my country. We also hear, by the way, that Sherman... Uh, was in the army and said, Hey, look, this is going to take 200,000 people and this war is going to be really bloody and going a long time. And everyone thought he was so insane that they kicked him out of the army. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, he was totally right. Yep. Grant, who had been a total failure up until this point, enlists back in the military. Yeah.
2: It comes to Sherman's my favorite. Really? Oh, yeah. Why? I identify with. I mean, I, he's a fascinating guy. hmm. He was right from the beginning. Absolutely. He. Wouldn't be quiet about it, which is why they kicked him out. Right. And then when he joins, to fight is to live for him. Right. He cannot exist without it. And when he does get the breaks, you hear in the documentary that he had given in to his darker natures, his spirits. Right. And had become depressed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, he definitely dealt, so. dealt with mental health right. stuff. Right. At a time when, you know, you don't know what No, yeah. Yet when the time came, he made this very horrible decision that had to be made when he set fire to Atlanta. He had to show the ferocity of what the union was willing to do so that the South would understand. And people who vilify that and Chiron Nagasaki or Hiroshima saying we did the right thing there, are incongruent in their points of view. No,
1: you can't. You, they are definitely in the same exactly. ballpark of strategy. Exactly. Strategies. You had
2: to show, and that is an American thing to show. This is the level to which we're going to go.
1: Well, and this is the you know Shelby Foote says, and I think it's true. I think it's true of Grant too, but he says it about Sherman, mm. which is that Sherman is the first modern general. Yes, is that he is the person is that, and that the change. I mean, we're we're now way ahead of ourselves, but this is going to be a strange episode. Yeah, is that. The Civil War marks an important turning point in the way war works. Mm-hmm. And it took a long, took four years to kind of figure it out. And yeah. Sherman is one of the guys who got it yep. in in the way that, you know, all the other guys didn't. Yeah. Maybe Grant did too. Eventually. Yeah. So everybody, you know, signs up and we're ready to go off to war and we know we're going to get to our first battle, which is the Battle of Bull Run or the Battle of Manassas, depending on where you got your education. <laughs> yeah, it's right. And... We think this is, the Union thinks this is going to be an easy victory. The the Confederacy thinks it's going to be an easy victory. And people from it's right near Washington, D.C. and people from Washington, they go out and let's have a picnic. Like it's a show. This is a show. They rode out this in the is carriages. Be, yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun. And that is not how it goes. Nope.
4: On the morning of the 21st, McDowell sent his men across Bull Run. <laughs> They smashed into the left side of the Confederate line, driving the rebels from one position after another. The civilian onlookers waved hats and fluttered handkerchiefs. It was not yet noon, and all was going just as they wanted. Union victory seemed so sure that on one part of the battlefield, men stopped to gather souvenirs. But holding a hill at the center of the southern line was a Virginia brigade led by General Thomas Jackson. While other southern commands wavered, Jackson's held firm. One Confederate officer, trying to rally his own frightened men, shouted, Look, there's Jackson with his Virginians, standing like a stone wall. The name stuck.
1: (laughs) And he repulses the Union, and then it is just absolute chaos. Yep. And man, all those people who are out there for a picnic, suddenly they're in the middle of a battle. And the Union Army breaks and runs, and they're getting... Stuck in the mud and and cannon getting wrapped up with the you know the onlookers and it 's a complete complete disaster it 's a harbinger of what will come for the next four years yeah and, and at the time the the wounded and the the death is just huge, and those numbers will be totally totally dwarfed by what 's going to come later on yeah
5: there is a a, a, a congressman I believe from alabama i 've forgotten where from who said there would be no war, and he offered to wipe up all the blood that would be shed uh, with a pocket handkerchief. Uh, that that was his prediction. I've always said someone could get a PhD by calculating how many pocket handkerchiefs it would take to wipe up all the blood that was shed. It'd be a lot of handkerchiefs. <laughs> I, so
1: lo- I love bad. Shelby Foote. Shelby, Shelby. He, he's such a perfect sort of southern gentleman mm-hmm. with just a wry, slow wit. Yes. you know, um, and, and super nerd super oh, yeah. nerd oh know. totally yeah and now suddenly we're in you know realize that this is a war with a thousand mile front yeah. i mean this is a huge huge war and lincoln puts mcclellan in charge of the union army so so karen and i karen had never seen this i mean she might have seen parts of oh, the Civil wow, war but okay. she'd never seen the whole thing and so we started watching with her and i knew that i had her That she was in when she started swearing at McClellan. (laughs)
3: Because he's so- Who doesn't?
1: So irritating. Yes. He seems like he was an excellent general if you wanted to train troops. Sure. He was an excellent general if you wanted uh, to organize troops. All his troops loved him. Yeah. They called him Little Napoleon. He was not a good general if you actually wanted to fight a war. Right. He is arrogant. He is dismissive of everybody else. He is completely convinced that he is the best in every way, and he would
2: not fight. Nope. Uh, I say it's a sports reference, right? He's a great coordinator. He's a terrible head coach. Yeah. He can yeah. get the players ready for game day, but when game day comes, he makes yep. too many mistakes coaching the team.
1: Uh, the The first episode ends with a letter from uh, Sullivan Ballou. Sullivan Ballou, man. And this letter is so gorgeous and beautifully written and i'm just going to play it for you dear sarah
6: the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days perhaps tomorrow unless i should not be able to write you again i feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when i am no more i have no misgivings about or lack of confidence in the cause in which i am engaged and my courage does not halt or falter. I know how American civilization now leans upon the triumph of the government and how great a debt we owe to those who went before us through the blood and suffering of the revolution. And I am willing, perfectly willing, to lay down all my joys in this life to help maintain this government and to pay that debt. Sarah, My love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly with all those chains to the battlefield. The memory of all the blissful moments I've enjoyed with you come crowding over me, and I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I've enjoyed them for so long and how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes of future years when, God willing, we might still have lived and loved together and see our boys grown up to honorable manhood around us. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. Forgive my many faults and the many pains I have caused you. How thoughtless, how foolish I have sometimes been. But, oh, Sarah, if the dead can come back to this earth and flit unseen around those they love, I shall always be with you in the brightest day and the darkest night. Always. Always when the soft breeze fans your cheek, it shall be my breath or the cool air your throbbing temple. It shall be my spirit passing by. Sarah, do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again.
4: Sullivan Ballou was killed a week later at the first battle of Bull Run.
2: I love that letter, man. <laughs> it's, it's so profound. I cry every time. Yeah. Every time. Because the way he describes how much he loves yeah. his wife and accepts the flaws within him. It's a very introspective, self-aware letter. At a time... When there was not psychologists or psychiatrists to help you figure out your feelings. Sullivan is so very aware of his shortcomings as a man, but still very aware of how much he loves his wife and adores her. And he says, like, if you feel the breeze, it'll be my hand touching your face. Oh, Sarah, just know, like, it'll be your name, I say, as I'm dying on the battlefield, right? And he asks for forgiveness from her. And then he ends the letter, and then McCulloch comes in without missing a beat and just says, Sullivan Ballou was killed. And, the, and you're just like,
1: fuck, oh, man. Well, again and again, so first of all, the poetry, the, the language of the letter is just like, <laughs> I mean, like it's like, it, it's as good a piece of writing as any I can think of. Absolutely. And that it's just from this soldier to his wife is amazing. And then, again, I... I picture the editing room and I picture the, well, where do we place this letter? Yeah. Because a perfectly reasonable choice is you place it before the battle because that's when he wrote it. Right. But in fact, we go through the battle. We get to the end of the battle and then we place it at the very end of the episode and say, and he died in the first battle of Bull Run. And then we roll credits. And you sit there after you've gone through your first hour and a half of the Civil War and go, oh, wow. (laughs) <laughs> and you and it really just, I, 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 part of it's the pace, and part of it's the language, and part of it's the music, but yeah. you kind of have to sit with it for a while. Right. And
2: it forces you to think and contemplate and be in that emotion for a little while. It humanizes the cost. Yep. Right? The first part talks so much about the numbers, the numbers, the amount of blood, the death, but this is the letter that shows you one person that dies. This is the kind of soul that was taken from the earth by this person. War. This is the kind of beautifully, beautiful soul yeah. you could write something like this. Well, and, and just
1: as you said before, it, it doesn't matter. Do we find out if he's on the Union side or the Confederate side? I think he's a Union. I think soldier. he is too, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. Yeah, right. Of course it, not. Because in the way that this movie is framed, it's not like here are the good guys fighting the bad guys. Right. It's no, you're going to feel for all these people. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, it's it's gorgeous. Uh, episode two opens with Julia Ward Howe coming up in the middle of the night at the Willard Hotel with the idea (laughs) of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Yeah. And then you hear this woman just sing the the language of this song.
2: Mine eyes have seen
0: the glory
5: of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes
2: of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword, his truth is marching
3: on.
1: And how that became the the main song for the Union side in the war, just as Dixie became the song for the Southern side. And that's another piece of music. And we're going to hear the Battle Hymn of the Republic, the theme from the show, Dixie, and a whole, several other songs that are going to play um, in certain circumstances throughout the film. Yeah, yeah. Then we do this thing. And again, I just, Ken Burns is genius at how he approaches things is one of the things he does and he does it several times in these episodes is what is going on in the rest of the world. Right. And he talks about in Russia, they emancipated the, the serfs that, that Victor Hugo published Les Miserables, that someone figured out what the speed of light is, that they invented, that the income tax was first passed, that the Gatling gun was invented. And now we go back to our hundreds of thousands of men that are marching off to war. And Shelby Foote comes on and says,
5: The nation had come face to face with uh, a dreadful tragedy, and we reacted the way a family would do with a dreadful tragedy. Uh, It was almost inconceivable that anything that horrendous could happen. You must remember that casualties in Civil War battles were so far beyond anything we can imagine now. If we had 10% casualties in a battle today, it would be looked on as a bloodbath. They had 30% in several battles. And one after another, you see. Which I would say today,
1: if we have three percent casualties, yeah, we would think of that as a bad, not bad. Back then, in in the Civil War, they had twenty percent, thirty percent. Yeah, you know, there were there were regiments where they were seventy percent of them were killed in a battle. Yeah, like there's just no comparison to anything we have experience with. And again, another, just Ken Burns' use of of filmmaking technique. We meet Sam Watkins, who is a private, Mm -hmm. and we go up the ranks all the way to Jefferson Davis. Yep. Through, you know, lieutenants, captains, colonels, generals, and up to the president of the Confederacy. And then we go to Lincoln and we go all the way down the ranks to. Elijah Hunt Road. To Elijah Hunt Road. Yeah. And it's like, this is, again, this is the filmmaker going, how am I going to tell this story? How am I going to put these people in time and place? And he uses filmmaking technique and an idea to yeah. go up the ranks and then down the ranks in the two armies. To offer you a construct. Yep. Um, McClellan still won't fight. Lincoln keeps pushing him to fight. <laughs> um, cannot get him to do anything. Oh, I apologize. It is McClellan that refers to Lincoln as the original guerrilla. Oh, Uh, not Stanton. Stanton had other bad things to say about Lincoln. And now we first start hearing about General Grant
5: um, and that I love this description of him. General Grant habitually wears an expression as if he had determined to drive his head through a brick wall and was about to do it.
1: (laughs) I don't think Grant is a person you'd want to be competing against. He's just not going to stop.
2: In intensity. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, and he is one of the few. Well, while McClellan is just sitting around, Grant is actually winning some small victories out out west. Mm-hmm. Now McClellan is finally going to move into the south, and it
4: is a huge operation. On April fourth, George McClellan at last began to move for Richmond. One hundred twenty one thousand five hundred men, fourteen thousand five hundred ninety two horses and mules. 1,150 wagons, 44 batteries of artillery, ambulances, pontoon bridges, tons of provisions, tents, telegraph wire. It took 400 boats three weeks to land it all at Fortress Monroe on the Virginia coast.
1: And the Confederates are hugely outnumbered, and he just waits. He doesn't attack. Um, And and that's when Lee starts to do his tricks, like having a... one battalion go back and forth over and over again to make it look like there's a much, much bigger army that they're fighting and McClellan calls in for reinforcements. Man, yeah. And he says, he oh, and he decides to dig in for defense. So he has this huge army, hugely well supplied, yeah. and he waits.
2: He's the most frustrating character in this entire piece. Oh my God, yes. Because you can't really fully call him a coward. No. But you can't, call him a great general either he is he's just i don't know if he's a coward he's overly cautious yes like i don't think he i don't know if he lacks for personal courage right but he's just he outthinks himself yeah into a box into paralysis he overanalyzes into paralysis which may belie a desire not to engage in war for fear that he could be killed for fear that he will take the shame of loss you can have the greatest record in preseason. Before any game is played, you're 0-0. So you, yeah. you're undefeated. Right. You certainly never won,
1: but you're undefeated. Well, and for him, he's got the best team in the world. Yes. Look at how amazing – look, I built
2: this amazing army. It's a great line in Henry V, right, when um, – ah, the Duke of Orleans is talking about his horse. Like they're all, all the French, before they go out to the Battle of Agincourt, in Henry V, they talk about their horses and they just speak about their horses and horses and our horses. They don't speak about the battle. They don't speak about who is going to help them with. They just talk about this grandiose nature of the horse, almost as if it's a shame that they have to go out and fight this battle. And I feel that's the way McClellan was. Look at my army. It's such a wonderful army. It's a beautiful army. It's the best army in the world. It would be a shame to even use it because I would, I would uh, dull its blade a little bit. Yep. I and, think you know, that's it. Yeah. And while he sits there,
1: Grant attacks. Yeah. And we're at Shiloh. Oh. Oof,
4: the Battle of Shiloh.
1: And I think Shiloh is the battle where we first realize how different this war is going to be. Yep. And how big the numbers are going to be.
4: At the head of one Union division was William Tecumseh Sherman, who had shaken off the melancholy that had sent him home the previous year. His Ohioans were encamped on a hill not far from a little log-built Methodist church called Shiloh when the 6th Mississippi attacked. The battle extended along a three-mile front. The worst fighting was in the center
5: where the rebels came on and on like maddened demons, a Union soldier said. The generals didn't know their jobs, the soldiers didn't know their jobs, it was just Pure determination to stand and fight and not retreat. And the bloodiness of it was just astounding to everyone. It also corrected a southern misconception, which had said one good southern soldier is worth ten Yankee hirelings. He found out that wasn't true by a long shot.
1: And Grant gets backed up to the river and he says, basically, hold this position at all costs. And the Confederates attack again and again and finally the general, which I think is Albert Johnston, is that mm-hmm. no? Is that the right name? Uh, Johnston leads the attack and is wounded, and they say, General, you're wounded, and he says, yes, and I fear seriously. And he bled to death on the scene. Um, and Beauregard sends a wire off to Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, and says, we've won. Yeah. I have Grant just where I want him. And there's literally thousands of dead and wounded. And there's just, at this point, there's no system to deal with them. You know, we think, you know, today the the us military is so brilliantly run in this in many areas yeah. many areas probably maybe some people would say it's not sure sure but but that if you're wounded the speed at which you would get medical attention today is unbelievable and then it's like you know 3000 men are wounded on a battlefield in the swamp how are you going to get to them right you know
4: scores of wounded collapsed and died drinking from a mud hole near the peach orchard staining the water red It began to rain, and flashes of lightning showed hogs feeding on the ungathered dead. Some cried for water,
6: others for someone to come and help them. I can hear those poor fellows crying for water. God heard them, for the heavens opened and the rain came.
4: Grant spent that night beneath a tree, rather than listen to the screams of the wounded men in his headquarters. It was there that Sherman found him. Well, Grant, he said, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? Yes, said Grant. Lick him tomorrow, though.
1: And then suddenly the next day, they push the Confederates back. It's one of the first Union victories. Mm-hmm. So here's some of the numbers. 2,400 men were killed uh, at Shiloh, 23,000 wounded. Wow. In two days. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, anyone who's watched this documentary or is probably listening to us, most people know that more people were killed in the Civil War than in all other American wars combined. Yeah. More Americans. Right. Yeah. The numbers are crazy. And, of course, Shiloh is, we hear just at the end of the battle, and again, this is from David McCullough.
4: Shiloh is a Hebrew word meaning place of peace.
2: He said you could see the. I think he says you can see the blood bubbling above the ground like oil. Wow, it was that. There was that much blood on dirt in the swamp.
1: Can't. I mean, there's no. It's. Of course, one of the interesting things. while there are lots of photographs. There's no photographs of battle. Right. So, because the the way that photography was, the lenses were so slow that you needed stillness for thirty seconds or so, and yeah. battles aren't like that. And so, there's basically no f- uh, footage of the battles. No f- uh, shots. It's always before or after. And the battles are created with beautiful, incredible sound design. So you hear the sound of the cannons or the gunshots, but you also hear the sound of the stream and the crickets yeah. and the birds. Yeah. And you hear the music and you hear the voices and the the rebel yell and all of these things. And it's so convincingly done as you're looking at old photographs or shots of just the battlefield today that was filmed you know, in the 80s yeah. is that people would come up to Ken Burns and say, The newsreel footage you had of the Civil War was just amazing. (laughs) How did you get that? He's like, there is none. But people were convinced that they had seen it because the way it's done in sound design is so uh, brilliant. Yeah.
2: Agreed.
1: And then uh, Burns does this thing, which he does throughout, which is he he steps out of the main narrative to tell you about something. And this time it's to tell you about technology Hmm. and how the world has changed since the last time there was a war. There's telegraph wires and railroads and large factories to build weapons. Yeah. There's um, different kinds of weapons. In particular, the rifled barrel and some repeaters has completely changed uh, military strategy. And this is – so I took – I found out when I was at Cal that you didn't have to be ROTC to take classes in the ROTC program. Huh. So I took a bunch of military uh, tactics, strategy classes. Sure. Because I was just always interested in it. And that was where I really understood, between that and this documentary, what the difference between an old smoothbore musket meant and a rifled-barreled musket, which was used in the Civil War. right? Going from the Revolution War to the Civil War. And that the difference is, is that, because old tactics, like Napoleonic tactics, were you have these muskets and you could fire, maybe you could fire three shots in a minute. That's if you're moving pretty fast. right? And they're accurate probably only 50 yards, maybe 60 or 70 yards tops. And so the strategy was, was you would mass your fire. So you'd have a bunch of guys and you'd have some kneeling and some standing and all the kneeling guys would fire. And then Mm -hmm. while they're reloading by, you know, you had to pull the ramrod out and put the powder down and stuff the the cartridge in there and then stuff more stuff in there and then put the ramrod back and then you could fire. The guys who were standing, they would fire. And then when they're reloading, you would fire. But you would only start firing at around 60, 70 yards because beyond that, you weren't accurate at all. So what would happen was you would have, so if you picture in the Revolutionary War, you have those red coats and they're in formation yes. and they're slowly walking up because they're safe, essentially because they can't be hit from 200 yards away. Right. And then they are, have bayonets fixed on their weapons. They fire one round maybe when they get to 50 yards when they're under fire and then they would run as fast as they can mm-hmm. across that 50 yards to kill someone with their with a bayonet attack. We'd now yeah. be in hand-to-hand combat. Yeah. And that kind of worked and that worked, you know, rifle barrel, they could reload pretty fast and they were accurate at 200 yards. (laughs) So it's like how fast now I don't run that fast anymore, but 50 yards, a a person who's in decent shape, carrying a heavy backpack over uneven terrain, Mm. maybe they can run the 50 yards in 20 seconds. Sure. You know, I mean, if they were had no backpack and they were on even terrain, they could do it faster. 200 yards is a totally different thing. Oh, yeah. And they would be under fire for maybe four or five or six rounds uh, for those 200 yards. Yeah. And it took an entire war for the armies to start to figure this out, that we can't use the tactics. We can't fix bayonets and just charge at somebody when they're in entrenched positions, particularly if they have the high ground, they just get wiped out. Yep. And over and over, year after year, all the battles, they're using this same strategy that does not work. Yeah. The worst of which is what we'll get to at Gettysburg and Pickett's charge. Yeah. Um Grant, who's been successful, gets removed from command.
3: <laughs>
1: because General Halleck doesn't like him. He's getting too much attention. There's room for pettiness in yeah. the war. Oh yeah. We've reached episode three. Ooh. Nice. We're doing all right then. Yeah. And it starts with a private killed in action. And you have more photos of soldiers and photos of photography tents and now we kind of talk about the photography that this is the first war photography was invented maybe 20 years before the civil war right so this is the first major war that was photographed wow
2: yeah and it's like sepia toned yeah and black and white yep matthew brady right was that the person who did the photography S- yeah matthew brady
1: yeah uh some of them i mean he, he right was, of course he, yeah he yeah, was the main the, the the most famous one made his name off the um for sure And now we're hearing about these numbers of dead that are in the tens of thousands. And McClellan is still sitting, still not doing anything. (laughs) Lincoln is begging him to fight. Please, attack something. (laughs) You know, you got to do something. And this is also the moment where Lincoln, who had never, he didn't run on emancipation. He had never publicly said he was for emancipation. I mean, emancipation was political suicide when he was elected president. But he is beginning to believe this is what the war is going to be about, yeah. and this is what I'm eventually going to have to do. Yeah. And while Lincoln's thinking about that, McClellan writes to Lincoln and says, "I need more troops." <laughs> oh, McClellan! <laughs> this is where this is where Carrot started to go. Oh my God, I hate this guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a logical place to do it.
4: Always mystify, mislead, and surprise the enemy, and when you strike and overcome him, never let up in the pursuit. Never fight against heavy odds if you can hurl your force on only a part of your enemy and crush it. A small army may thus destroy a large one, and repeated victory will make it invincible. General T.J. Jackson.
1: Stonewall Jackson. Yeah. He is one of those people who seems crazy, intense, scary, brilliant, um, and believes in a whole bunch of stuff that is, you know, fairly horrible yeah. to me.
5: He would have a man shot at the drop of a hat, and he'd drop it himself. Sam Watkins. He had a a strange quality of overlooking suffering. There was during one of the battles, he had a young courier, and Jackson looked around for him, he wasn't there, and he said, where is Lieutenant so-and-so? And And they said, uh, he was killed, General. Jackson said, very commendable, very commendable. (laughs) And they put him out of his mind. His men did not love him, he was
4: too grim, too remote, and he demanded too much. Some thought him mad. He believed that only by keeping one hand in the air could he stop himself from going out of balance. And he sucked constantly on lemons, even in the midst of battle. Others worried that his religious fervor would cloud his judgment. His command, Jackson said, was an army of the living God, as well as of its country.
2: Yeah, he kind of sounds like a sociopath to me. Well, and one that fought for his troops. Oh, yeah. And believed in his troops, so he was an extension of his troops. And he it sounds like they loved and hated him. Yeah. Because he was
1: brutal, he was cold, Yeah, and he was, but he cared about them. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And rode into battle with them, Oh not yeah. hanging back. Yeah, right. Yeah, the counters—that's what you find when you watch the documentaries. These counters, to come to Sherman is to Stonewall Jackson as Robert E as a Grant is to Robert E. Lee. It's these are counterparts that are almost equal. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah, but no question that he's a brilliant general. Uh, one of the things I liked is apparently he moved. He he moved, he put his troops on forty-hour forced marches mm-hmm. to to confuse, surround, surprise the Union troops. One of the things I feel is that he had like a map of the area that was, you know, the size of this room, hmm. you know, like 10 feet by 10 foot map. Right. And I was thinking about it. it it's so interesting because now we have the entire earth mapped to the most <laughs> minute detail. True. And we, kn- we know where everything is. Mm-hmm. Then, if you were the Union army in the Shenandoah Valley or something, you don't know what's over that ridge. right? You don't know how high that hill is. You don't know where the trail moving up this thing. That 10 foot by 10 foot map was a massively important weapon of war that yeah. Stonewall Jackson had.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, We've reached the seven days. Johnson, who was uh, the general in charge of the Army of Northern Virginia at the time, was yeah. wounded. And he says that him getting wounded was the best thing that could have ever happened in the Confederacy. Because that meant Robert E. Lee was put in charge. Yep, And McClellan thought Lee would be easier to defeat. ...than Johnson had been. Weighed him out even more.
4: Yeah. Oh, yeah. McClellan completely misjudged the new Confederate commander. Robert E. Lee was a fighter. Wanting to get at the Union men who had dared invade his state, Lee renamed his force the Army of Northern Virginia, seized the initiative, and never let it go. First, Lee sent his cavalry chief, Jeb Stewart, to reconnoiter McClellan's forces. Stewart now led 1,200 troopers on a pounding three-day, 150-mile ride around McClellan's huge army. His men burned federal camps, cut down telegraph poles, took prisoners and horses and mules, and slowed only to accept bouquets and kisses from women along the way. In vain pursuit was Stewart's own father-in-law, who had stayed loyal to the Union and become a general. A decision Stewart said he would regret, but once. And that will be continuously.
1: <laughs> and Lee did something you're never supposed to do, which is you're never supposed to divide a smaller force in front of a larger force. Because mm-hmm. you'll just get killed. And that's exactly what he did. And he used speed and mobility to just dominate McClellan yeah I mean just he attacked him here and then he was there and then he was there and then he was there if you look at the maps that they put Mm. in the documentary and you see what Lee did it's just amazing in this series of battles yeah uh and and basically all he has battled for a week straight all but one of the battles were union victories but McClellan treated them as defeats yeah uh and he kept retreating and did not counterattack. and this is the thing about Lee is that Lee seems to have this amazing ability to look into the soul and the brain of the general he is facing. Yeah. And so he knew that by hitting McClellan, hitting McClellan, hitting McClellan, even though he didn't win each engagement, is that he would push him all the way out of Virginia, Yeah, which is what he did.
5: The answer to the, a southerner would give you as to why are you fighting if you were a northerner, he would say, I'm fighting because you're down here. He was being invaded and he fought as he thought to defend his home.
1: And if you ask the Northerner, there were all sorts of different reasons. Right, And for Lincoln, it was, number one, preserve the republic, and number two, free the slaves.
4: On the morning of July 22nd, 1862, the president called a cabinet meeting. What he said took everyone by surprise. After long thought, he told them, he had decided to emancipate the slaves. And
1: this is a profound moment in history. He has no constitutional right to do this. He has, we're in the middle of the war, the country's been split in half, and he decides this is this, not only the moral thing to do, but also the thing that's going to save the war. Right. And they say, they finally convince him, don't do it when we're losing, basically. If we have a victory, maybe you can do this emancipation thing. Right. Because it will completely change the character of the war. Because there are a lot of people in the North who, who if you said you're fighting for to free the slaves, they would leave they would right. say no right i'm not going to do that
2: and there was racism in the north it was of course slaves as well absolutely in the north wasn't some kind of clean thing well and it
1: still isn't just no, to, like, uh, fair yeah you could find some racism all over the country absolutely And at this point, the Confederate Army is just running circles around Mm -hmm. me. Jeb Stewart is not only winning battles, but stealing Union supplies and running, surprising the Union in all sorts of different places. Uh, And when they go to look for him, they've disappeared. Yeah. And after the seven days, Lincoln fires McClellan.
2: Yeah, finally. So I'm glad that we're done with that guy. We don't have to see him anymore. And he gives some pugnacious response to his firing. I think in the letter of his wife, you know. These idiots, they have no idea what they're doing. Don't worry, I'll be president soon. Yeah, he's so arrogant and horrible.
4: Desperate for a victory, Lincoln removed McClellan and put tall, bombastic John Pope in command. Pope so often bragged that his headquarters were in the saddle,
5: people began to say he had his headquarters where his hindquarters should have been. Lincoln was warned at the start that Pope was not to be trusted with telling the truth, and Lincoln said, "I've known the Popes back in Illinois, known all of them. They're all liars and braggarts. But I don't know of any particular reason why a liar and a braggart shouldn't make a good general." We end up back at Bull Run for a second battle here.
1: Think it's going to go any better for the Union? <laughs> I Goes don't think so. worse. Twenty-five thousand killed or wounded or missing after the second Battle of Bull Run. Wow. Yeah, these numbers are huge. Yeah so uh general pope is in charge of the the union army at uh, the second battle of bull run yeah and fired after the second battle of bull run and who
2: does lincoln put in charge mcclellan mcclellan again welcome back little mac It's time Steinbrenner finding billy martin and bringing him right back uh <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> sorry that took me a moment <laughs> i had to go from abraham lincoln and <laughs> mcclellan to to the yankees <laughs> took me a sec of the 70s yeah um uh Lincoln is so such a profound person and a profound, deeply introspective thinker. And one of the things that he thinks about is that both parties f- claim to fight for the will of God, that God is on their
4: side. In great contests, Abraham Lincoln wrote as the summer waned, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, but one must be wrong. God cannot be for and against the same thing at the same time.
1: You know, and that's what he comes to believe is, in fact, God is punishing both
2: sides Both sides, yeah. in this battle. Which, of course, is probably not true.
1: Yeah. So a Union soldier finds three cigars wrapped in a piece of paper, and that was Lee's battle plan. And he brings it to McClellan, who knows exactly what Lee is going to do. Right, And you know what he did?
2: Sat
4: back.
1: Nothing, nothing. 18 hours he sat.
4: There was a single item in our advantage, an aide to Lee remembered, but it was an important one. McClellan had brought superior forces to Sharpsburg, the aide conceded, but he had also brought himself.
1: And we end up at Antietam. McClellan had the numbers, by far, did not attack. Yep. And the description of this battle is absolutely beautiful. Ah!
4: The rebels countercharged. The battle surged back and forth across the cornfield 15 times. In a matter of minutes, the 12th Massachusetts lost 224 of 334 men.
1: These are whole towns being wiped out. Uh, it's just stunning. By 10 a.m., 8,000 lay dead or wounded. And Jackson, while eating a peach, says God has been very kind to us this day. They survived five attacks at the Confederate center. There's a Confederate general who was shot four times and refused to leave the field. What thing we we have to say about particularly, I mean, there's incredible valor and courage on both sides, mm-hmm. but some of the things the Confederate army did against massive odds, the bravery, the style, the, as Shelby Foote would say, the Elan it's remarkable.
2: Yep. All because McClellan wouldn't attack. Yep. This is, This is a whole nother war, if much other than the attacks. Maybe they
1: lose. One of the things Shelby Foote talks about uh, near the end of the documentary is he said, you know what? I think in a lot of ways the North fought with one hand tied behind its back. Mm -hmm. And that he kind of says, which I tend to agree, there was almost no way for the North to lose this war. Yeah. Because they so, so much more financial manufacturing and population power. I mean, it's just sh- their sheer stupidity that kept this war going as long as it did. And some brilliant generalship from Lee Absolutely. and Jeb Stewart and Stonewall Jackson and some of those people. Yeah. And then uh, the Union got into a good high ground position and they almost broke the uh, Confederate line. McClellan chose not to attack. At the end of this battle is when we first meet Clara Barton, who is the woman who will at some day form the Red Cross. Yeah. And w- we begin to hear about these women that dealt with the wounded and the hospitals and the hard work that they did. And it's just remarkable. Yeah. At the end of this battle, no ground had been gained. And Burnside, one of our other generals, begs McClellan, let's follow up the Confederates. Let's take the attack to them. Yeah. And he goes, no.
2: Right.
1: I mean it might have been a moment where they could have could have actually ended the war right then. Yeah. Had he just attacked. Uh, the Battle of Antietam is the bloodiest day in American history. Twenty one thousand dead, ten thousand wounded. That's, that's a lot. That's in I mean those no I can't you can't even conceive of them. Yeah. You know, we think about things like the most uh the bloodiest day in America in our lifetimes, yeah. September eleventh probably. It's three thousand dead. On September 11th. This is 21,000 dead. In one battle. In one battle. And when the population of America was, you know... Right. I think it was 30 or 40 million. So it's, it's like 10% of what it is today. Yeah. I mean, th- th- these numbers are insane. Yep, Lincoln shows up at the battlefield and pushes in person. McClellan, please go pursue, pursue Lee.
7: I came back thinking he would move at once. But when I got home, he began to argue why he ought not to move. I peremptorily ordered him to advance. It was 19 days before he put a man over the river and nine days longer before he got his army across. And then he stopped again.
4: Lincoln at last had had enough of George McClellan. The president relieved him of command permanently.
1: Uh, Lincoln does at this time reinstate Grant. And he says about him, I can't spare this man. He fights. And Grant uh, ends up at Vicksburg. And that is when Lincoln... Re- Uh, releases the emancipation proclamation Mm -hmm. all people held as slaves in states rebelling are now free yeah um and this not only does this piss off people in the south but it pisses off people in the north Mm -hmm. we don't want to
2: fight for slavery you're finally saying what it is yeah
4: on the sea islands off south carolina federal agents read the proclamation aloud to former slaves under the spreading boughs of a huge oak tree as the commander of a new all-black regiment unfurled an American flag, his men broke into song. It seemed the choked voice of a race at last unloosed, he wrote. In the beauty
3: of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea.
1: And there's this beautiful progression of photographs as we hear the songs of the slaves and they progress from these photographs of slaves dissolving into photographs of black soldiers in the union army and and we hear you know glory glory hallelujah playing and we even go from a kind of ragged young boy who's obviously a slave right into a african-american young boy who's a drummer boy in a union uniform right that's fucking great filmmaking.
3: This on.
1: And this is what film can do so well is in a series of images, juxtaposed with music, we see the journey from slavery to hero fighting to free slaves right. in just a few images, and the importance of the Emancipation Proclamation for lincoln and for our country and what it does just with a few images that's the genius of what ken burns does in this film is just blows my mind
5: in this army one hole in the seat of the britches indicates a captain two holes a lieutenant and the seat of the pants all out indicates that the individual is a private
1: episode four yeah 1863, simply murder. In
4: 1863, Confederate General Stonewall Jackson would become a terror to the Union Army and a legend north and south. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, a college professor from Maine, would lead his regiment to glory on hillsides in Virginia and Pennsylvania. In the wilderness west of Fredericksburg, Robert E. Lee would devise one of the most daring and brilliant battle plans of the war.
1: Great beginning. So in episode four starts off in sort of the same way with us telling us a little bit about things that are going on in the world. Yeah. You know, that uh, that roller skates were invested, that the, someone stole their first base in baseball. <laughs> Henry Ford and William Randolph Hearst were born this year. And now we start to hear about disease, which is in fact the number one killer in the world. I think it's, I think it's three to one or four to one of killed in battle versus killed by disease. Wow. Disease is the number one killer. And we've reached Fredericksburg. This battle is so brutal. And this is where, you know, and Shelby Foote says that that maybe the bravest action in the war is the Union repeatedly attacking the entrenched position over and over and over again and getting pushed back and attacking again and again and again.
4: Yeah. Watching from above, even Robert E. Lee was moved. It is well he said that war is so terrible we should grow too fond of it.
1: Mm-hmm. This is this thing it comes up many times of just the these horrible moments of brutality that are also the kind of ultimate expression of human bravery mm-hmm. you know that are happening simultaneously throughout this war. yeah uh, and the, and that're really highlighted in the documentary
2: and the statesmanship of Lee all the time yeah
1: he he's a fascinating figure for so many reasons. Um, and, 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 one of the things he seems to be someone that just, you wanted to follow. Mm-hmm. He had such dignity and such penetrating intelligence and strength of will. Yeah. I mean, you know, by the end of this war, these people would follow him literally into the gates of hell. They yeah. Follow Robert E. Lee. Off in the West, we, where we really start hearing, uh, For the first time, about Nathan Bedford Forrest, who's the other cavalry commander for the Confederate Army. And he is the epitome of the contradiction uh, for me of a man who truly believes. I mean, this is the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. You know, this is a guy, but there is no doubting that he is a brilliant cavalry general. Shelby Foote says he is one of the two great geniuses produced in the war, Mm. the other being Abraham Lincoln. Right. Which when he told he, he knew uh, Forrest's granddaughter in Alabama or wherever they were. Mm-hmm. And he said that to her. And she said, well, you know, we're not too fa- fond of Mr. Lincoln in our family. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what he's doing at this point is stealing stealing horses, stealing yep. carts, stealing equipment, you know, busting up supply lines. He's just, you know, wreaking havoc out in the West. Yep. And now, yep. again, we have one of these digressions where... Uh, the film goes and talks about booze mm. and pastimes and things that the people in the in the armies were doing. Yeah. And that, this is the lovely thing that you can do in an 11 hour documentary is we're going to take time out from the narrative to just kind of learn more about the people who are living at this time. Yeah. You know what? I always forget that there were no medals in the Confederate Army. No medals
2: handed out. You yep. Yeah. Interesting. They,
1: everyone was doing it just to be right. of Honor.
2: Right. You know. Um, Also, I don't know if they had money for medals, to be honest with you. Uh, That's a
1: good point. (laughs) And as we're hearing more about things that are going on, we start to hear about the music that's in the camps Mm. and that they've written songs about Lee and about Grant and about Stonewall Jackson uh, and that they love listening to Dixie and Home Sweet Home Mm. and Lorena and and this these moments. And now you just 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 listen to some of this music. And again, this is what really separates this documentary from anything else. There are title, uh, title cards that happen throughout the documentary, dividing up sections, and this one is called Under the Shade of the Trees.
3: <laughs>
1: and what's so interesting that you come to know is that when you first see the card, most of the time, you don't know what that's going to mean. Yeah, You know that at some point in the next you know, 10 or 20 minutes, you're going to discover what it is. Um, and here we've come to the Battle of the Wilderness. Oh, yeah. Um, this is just, they're, they're so brutal. Some of these are just so painful. Um, Lee was outnumbered two to one. And again, he divides his army in front of a, a superior force. And he sends Jackson off to outflank General Hooker.
7: General, I have placed you at the head of the Army of the Potomac. I have heard in such a way as to believe it of your recently saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, it was not for this, but in spite of this, that I have given you the command. Only those generals who gain successes can set up as dictators. What I now ask of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship. Abraham Lincoln.
1: And Hooker ignores he has scouts coming out saying, hey, there's a big army coming, and he ignores them. And it's finally when deer start running out of the forest towards him that he goes, oh no, I guess what it really is an army coming and Jackson has this incredibly successful attack. Yeah. And then scouting for a night attack, he rides out in front of his troops and then is riding back and his troops don't recognize yeah. him and he's shot by his own men. What an irony. Yeah. Shot by his own men. Yeah. At the same time, General Hooker is bumbled around and gets knocked out <laughs> during the battle and it's just groggy um, and finally orders the retreat. <laughs> But the Union loses seventeen thousand men oh, damn. in this battle. Um, so many wasted lives, man. And Jackson, as he at first, they think he's going to be okay. He's shot in the arm, and then as he becomes delirious, and everyone knows he's going to die. And his last words are, "Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees." And then he died. And that's where we learn where that title came from. Yeah, and it is, you know, I, again, mm-hmm. I would be against Jackson. Sure. This is not a person. This is a man who fought for slavery. He was right. a religious fanatic. He was pretty darn crazy. He was, a, you know, tremendous racist by any standard yeah. of today, or really any standard period. And yet, this story of him and his death, and killed by his own men, and what he did—you're still drawn to him right. on some levels. Yeah. The next section title is called "A Dust Covered Man," and we hear all about these generals that Lincoln is putting in charge.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We have McClellan and Pope and. Halleck and Meade and all these people and McClellan multiple times and he just can't find the right guy. And we hear about Grant's battles at Vicksburg, and he is just tenacious. Yeah. And finally, you know, he he marches his men through a swamp in the middle of the night, goes out where he can't be resupplied, crosses the river. Someone describes that the soldiers are marching and they see a dust-covered man by the side of the road, and that is General Grant. Hmm. He's like the opposite of Lee. Yeah. Lee is elegant. He's like a, uh, like a lord, you know? He's super high class. And Grant's just an ordinary guy. Just a dude. He's, yep. he's a grunt. Yeah, he was... We talked about this before of like the generals who lead, who are separate from their men and lead from behind and the generals who are like their men and lead from the front. Yeah. And Grant is definitely... He's just one of the men, Yep. you know? Um, and the thing that Shelby Foote talks about is the power of Grant's confidence.
5: The men knew they were cut loose from their base knew they were going to be dependent for supplies on a very tenuous supply line. But Grant himself gave them confidence. They believed Grant knew what he was doing. And one great encouragement for their believing that was quite often on the march, whether at night or in the daytime, they'd be moving along a road or over a bridge, and right beside the road would be Grant on his horse, a dust-covered man on a dust-covered horse saying, move on, close up. So they felt very much that he personally was in charge of their movement, and it, it gave them an added confidence.
2: It's pretty incredible because, you know, he's an alcoholic. Yep. He was terrible at just about everything else. Yet in battle, he just had this confidence and he was willing to use as many troops as possible to achieve the victory. Well, he, I think, he, the anti McClellan. Yeah. He, he is exactly
1: what he is. It's funny. I read the Chernow book on Grant, which is the same guy who wrote the Hamilton book that Hamilton's based on. Oh, yeah. That book kind of makes you go. Grant wasn't given enough credit for as brilliant a guy. Like, there's a big rap on him that he was just the butcher who just sent men to their deaths, and he just had so many that he could afford to do it. Right. And in the Chernow book, it's like he was a much more sophisticated person. And even the alcoholism, it sounds like it sounds like when he drank, he was a fall down completely dead to the world drunk. Like that's the level. He didn't like drink and get obnoxious. He drank (laughs) to be incapacitated but it didn't do it that much mm-hmm. like he and, and it's funny again you go in the world before aa and dealing with addiction and all this stuff it was just what's wrong with you yeah you know why um and and it does seem like he he has i, I know shelby foot talks about he had like three in the mor- three in the morning courage yeah which is that they could wake him up in the middle of the night and say the enemy has turned your left flank and he would be as calm and cool as and confident as he would be at any other time. Yeah. You know, he's a remarkable person. And the siege at Vicksburg might be his his best action as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Like it is really a beautiful bit of soldiering. Um and at the end of this, we hear after Grant is taking Vicksburg that Lee has decided that the only thing he can do is to invade the north. Right. And that is the end of episode four.
2: What a gutsy like wow! Just remember this in Braveheart? We're gonna attack. Yes. York.
1: yeah. It's funny that you should say that because one of the things I don't—I I thought about when we were doing Braveheart. Yeah, but I don't think I brought it up, which is that the favorite books that were being read in the American South before the Civil War are the books by. Um, Okay. Uh, Sir Walter Scott or the books by Sir Walter Scott. Okay. Which includes like Ivanhoe's the number one. one and that's oh, where right. you get the first stories of stories of Robin Hood. And on, and the other thing that Sir Walter Scott wrote is the is the William Wallace book. Oh. Is the based on the blind whatever is blind Harry or whatever right. it is, is that he wrote this book and the Walter Scott books are all about honor and fighting for the lost cause mm-hmm. and fighting against tyranny. And those are the main things being read by Southern gentlemen before the civil war, like all of these ideas. And if you think about dueling and all the sort of Southern gentlemen kind of beliefs about honor. Yeah. Um, a lot of that comes from these romantic writers of that era in England. Yeah. Um, and so you think about, the William Wallace attacking York, you know, we talked about in Braveheart. Although he never actually went to York, no. and now you have Robert E. Lee going, okay, let's invade the North. Yeah. Um, well, it, it's interesting too because one of the things that we're going to get into in this war is Lincoln had very narrow support for yes. a lot of this time, and if you could get them to tire of the war, the North, maybe they will sue for peace. Because yeah. because this is the thing for Lincoln, what he has to do. He has to destroy the Confederacy right. and force them back into the country. All the Confederacy has to do is get the North to leave him alone. Yeah. That's a lot easier job mm-hmm. than actually destroying the armies of the Confederacy. Yeah. Episode five, a universe of battle. This is essentially all about, almost entirely about Gettysburg. Wow. Um, you've obviously been to Gett- Gettysburg. Yes, a few times. When Karen and I, we drove across the country in 95, and we drove like up the west coast, across the north, up into Canada, up through Maine, all the way down the east coast, and back along the south. And one of the things we did, because my parents told us to do this, is they said, when you go go to Gettysburg, and then when you go there, you can actually pay for a ranger to drive around in your car and give you a personal tour of the battlefield. Wow. And it was like, I think it was like 50 bucks or something mm-hmm. when we did this in 95. And maybe it's much more money now, I have no Probably. idea. It was the greatest historical, first of all, I love rangers in national parks. They're just, I they're the best. Right. Um. And But it was the most amazing tour. It was like three hours of driving around with this guy, just Karen and I and this guy in our car, you know, going yeah. through all the spots. The Battle of Gettysburg is a remarkable yeah. story. And do you know, I had never seen the movie Gettysburg. What? Until two weeks ago. What? I watched it because of this. Oh, it's so good. It's It's, really good. It's surprisingly good. I mean, it's funny because it is very TV movie-ish in a lot of the ways that it's filmed. But man, it it is really cool. Yeah. It is um, a good movie.
2: Jeff Daniels is incredible.
4: Martin Sheen is incredible. Martin Sheen's amazing. Yeah,
2: so many great people in that movie. Yeah, really good.
4: The greatest battle ever fought in the Western Hemisphere began as a clash over shoes. At dawn on July 1st, a Confederate infantry officer led his men toward the little crossroads town of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, within view of a Lutheran seminary whose high cupola offered a fine prospect of the surrounding farms and rolling hills. There was rumored to be a supply of shoes at Gettysburg, and the footsore rebels were there to commandeer them. The South came in from the North that day, and the North came in from the South. Up to
1: this point, the South has made very few mistakes. Right. And this is where they start to make some. And the two, the biggest one is that Lee always had good intelligence because Jeb Stuart, his cavalry guy, always kept him informed of the Union position. And Jeb Stuart, who had been sort of embarrassed by something that had happened recently, was out to prove himself, so he went riding off on this long journey, and yeah. Lee had no contact with him. In comes some Union soldiers up to, I think it's at uh, Seminary Ridge, mm-hmm. And they go, oh, this is a good position. And, oh, there's some Confederate soldiers. We have to hold this. And so they have to hold that on the first day wow. against multiple attacks from, uh, I think, uh, Jubal Early uh, is, okay. is attacking. And they manage to hold this position. And Longstreet, so 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 now that, uh, that Jackson is gone, hmm. Longstreet is Lee's kind of right-hand man. Right. Um, and he doesn't like this situation. And he is saying... We should either retreat or we should flank them. Yeah. We shouldn't fight them straight. And Lee, who doesn't have intelligence on the union position, goes, No, no, they're here. We're gonna beat them here. Is that his hubris? I think so. Yeah. Finally. There's also he might have had health problems too. So oh, Lee might not have been in the best ed- like if you read Killer Angels, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It talks a lot about that Lee had had heart problems. Right, right. And but I think it's definitely hubris. Yeah. Well, because well, he he, he didn't, won. He yeah, he'd won over and over again. Yeah, And he didn't learn the lessons of his own victories. And right. one of the lessons is it's really hard to attack entrenched positions, particularly when you're going uphill. Yeah. You know, because he'd always been he'd never defended those. I mean, he always defended those positions and didn't attack them. Yeah. He always attacked weak positions, which is, of course, what you're supposed to do. And the first day is kind of not decisive. The Union holds their position. There was a moment where maybe one of the Confederate generals, if they had pushed the attack, yeah. maybe they would have been able to turn the Union's flank, but they didn't do it. Right. And now we're and on the second day, more Union troops are coming in, more troops are coming in for the Confederacy, and suddenly this is going to be a really, really big battle. Yeah. Um, by the second day, there's 65,000 Confederate troops and 85,000 Union troops. <laughs> and for the Union, who has the high ground, they're up on... On one side is uh, Cemetery Ridge and on the other side is the Big and Little Round Tops. <laughs> and Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain with his group from Maine gets sent off to defend the Little Round Top.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And he is a pro- he's one of the great characters in the documentary.
2: Oh, absolutely.
3: And, and in
1: he, the movie. Yeah, and in Gettysburg, yeah, cuz it's Jeff Daniels. Yeah. Um, and he is a professor from Maine with no military experience who was forbidden by his family and everyone he knew to join the military. And he basically goes to his university and says, I'm going to take a sabbatical to study something. And they say, okay. And he goes off and joins and becomes a colonel. And this is a brilliant scholarly person who ends up being an incredible military leader. Yeah. Um, And he is out on the little round top, which is the extreme left of the union flank. And the orders come down, you have to defend this position at all costs. Can you imagine if someone said to you, at all costs? At all costs. You know, it's you and me and our whole group of friends, and yeah. we have to defend a position at all costs. And you're looking around going, so we have to stay here fighting until all of us are dead.
2: Yeah. You know. Or Dan ocean kills them. Well, one would
1: hope. <laughs> he's not as young as he used to be. I don't know if he still has that kind of power. Well, he's at um, our friends. He's got to count. And that's, and, and that's 300 people in Chamberlain's uh, group. Right and 3000 people are coming to attack them. Mm. And he makes a speech apparently that mm-hmm. was like one of those great like I mean I think cuz he'd read St Crispin's Day right me, right you know of what course I mean? like he knew how to do this thing right. and he basically says you sons of Maine you have a chance to fight for freedom. You know this is yeah. I mean it's 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 a remarkable thing that he does. And they had only showed up at this position 10 minutes earlier when the attack comes. 10 minutes to dig in. Right. That's all they've got. And he sends out a, one of his companies out to the far left to kind of, to head out there. They end up going a little bit farther than he wanted them to go. And then up comes the attacks. Yep. For one and a half hours, they're under massive fire from 3,000 people, charge after charge after charge that they hit back. Now we're down to maybe it's 160 people left out yep. of his 300, with, uh, fighting against thousands. Our ammunition
6: is nearly all gone and we are using the cartridges from the boxes of our wounded comrades. A critical moment has arrived, and we can remain as we are no longer. We must advance or retreat. It must not be the latter, but how can it be the former?
4: Chamberlain's only choice was to attack, and now he conjured up an unlikely textbook maneuver. With his men almost out of ammunition, he ordered them to fix bayonets. Then while the right of his line held straight, he had his left plunge down the hillside, all the while wheeling to the right, like a great gate upon a post, an eyewitness said. The Confederates were taken completely by surprise. Those in the front ranks dropped their weapons. Those behind turned and ran.
1: And then the B Company that he sent off way over to the left, suddenly hears some fighting that goes, what's that? They come back and suddenly trap this Confederate army between two sides of fire yep. and like 600 guys surrender and the rest break and run. Yeah. So you've got 160 guys who are now having to cover way more numbers than them that surrender. <laughs> and and if if that had fallen, if Little Round Top had fallen, the odds are the Confederate army would have rolled up the entire Union army yeah. and the whole war might've been done differently. So this one person in this one group might've saved the Union. Yeah, he's he's a fascinating character. Yeah. There's one skirmish in this battle where 87% of a regiment fell in five minutes at Gettysburg. Um, And another company lost 100%. And Lee, at the end of the day, said it was a success. Yeah. And Longstreet is going, no, it wasn't. They're still in the same positions they were in at the beginning of the day. And we lost a lot of men. Um, And Longstreet is trying, he's saying, "Let's, let's try to flank him, go to the left. And Lee just insists. We're going to fight him here. Mm-hmm. And it's so, it's so painful to think, because Longstreet was commanding the troops at Fredericksburg right. that just wiped the Union army out after attack after attack. And, he's, and he looks up there at the ridge and goes, we're in the same position.
4: General Longstreet, I think, had good reasons to worry about attacking the Union position at Gettysburg. After all, it was his corps at Fredericksburg that mowed down the Union troops in front of the stone wall? He could realize
5: what the rifled musket could do, held in the hands of determined troops.
4: The next day was Pickett's charge.
1: So if you knew anything about the Civil War, you already know what's about to happen. Right. You know, Um, and now we're on the third day. Uh, It begins badly. Um, Finally, Jeb Stewart shows up, by the way, and gets scolded Mm-hmm. You know, he he shows up and he's stolen some carts and some horses and stuff. <laughs> and and he says, hey, I brought you these carts and horses. And Lee says to him, you know, they are a hindrance to me, sir. Which from Lee sounds like that was pretty... Lee, Lee yeah. talked down to you. It was pretty bad. And it's 1 p.m. And Pickett, who is a general in the Confederate Army who has never commanded troops in battle, yeah. but is very excited because he just has these romantic notions about what battle is going to be. He gets given the job of... You're going to attack with your, I think it's like 10,000 men, 13,000 men. You're going to walk 1.5 miles up this hill to attack the center of the Union line. And Longstreet is so upset that Pickett looks to him as like, is the order given? And Longstreet can't even say wow. it. He just nods. Right. And they start walking. And, and and you know, the way the, sh- the documentary frames it is almost everybody knows this is a disaster. Right, right, right. And you think about, you know, what I was saying before about the the range of these rifled uh, weapons. Mm -hmm. Well, they also have rifled cannon. So the artillery is way more accurate. Yeah. And there's a big artillery barrage that the Confederates shoot first to soften up the Union. And the Union fire back. And then they go, no, no, let's stop. They stop firing for two reasons. One is to conserve their ammunition. Mm -hmm. And the other reason is to get them to come out. Right. Because they, at this point, want them to attack. They're in a good position. (laughs) That's right. The general commanding the Union troops at the center of the line is it's uh, Hancock okay and Hancock's best friend at West Point is a guy named Armitage who's one of the generals who is leading the attack from the Confederacy right and in the in the book Killer Angels and in the the movie they talk about that the last thing Armitage said to him is that if I ever raise my weapon against you let God strike me down and now here he is leading an attack on Hancock's position yeah. yeah. That's the profundity
2: of the Civil War yeah. to me. The connective tissues that run throughout between people, both intimate and otherwise, and how that can... And what a shock and a turn of event yeah. it is for everybody involved. Yeah. And again, the
1: the attack of Pickett's Sarge is incredibly brave. Yeah. Because it is so hopeless. Yes. And a few troops do manage to make it all the way to the line, including Armitage, who is killed wow. right as he crosses the line. But but they're all wiped out.
4: As the rebels staggered back, Lee rode out to meet
5: them. All this has been my fault, he told them. Probably his finest hour was after the repulse of Pickett's charge. He walked out into the field, met the men retreating, and said, It is all my fault. And he told them that. He wrote to the government, to Jefferson Davis, and said, it was all my fault. I asked more of men than should have been asked of them. Pickett was horrified. When told to rally his division for a possible
4: Union counterattack, Pickett answered, General Lee, I have no division now. Pickett never forgave Lee. Years later, he said, that old man had my division slaughtered.
2: Ah, uh, It's a great scene in the movie, too. Yeah. Stephen Lang... And Martin Sheen having that back and forth.
1: Longstreet describes this as a battle over ground that had no value.
3: Hmm.
1: Yeah, a third of the men in Pickett's charge were lost. Twenty-three thousand casualties total from the South in the battle. Twenty-eight thousand, or sorry, twenty-three thousand for the North, twenty-eight thousand for the South. That's incredible. And Lee retreats. There's more casualties at Gettysburg uh, in those three days. Than all the American casualties in Vietnam.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's stunning numbers to hear about. Well, we're not fighting another nation. So logically, that helps the numbers be so high because we're killing our own. Well, and it's the size that, you know, it's like
1: one of the things I remember from my um, strategy class at ROTC thing I took is since the modern era... Generals are always fighting the last war because mm. you learn the lessons from, you know, the Revolutionary War. And then you go, okay, that's how you fight a war. But now technology has changed. By the time you get to the Civil War, the technology, the, the size of the armies is so totally different. Yeah. And you have these massive casualties. And if you see the end of the Civil War, which we'll get to, yeah. is they're actually starting to fight like we're going to fight in World War One which is trench warfare, yep. you know? And then by the time we get to trench warfare, that doesn't work anymore either. And you have massive, massive casualties. And then you get to the beginning of World War II, they're fighting like the end of World War I. Right. And that has to change. And by the time we get to Korea and then Vietnam, you know, we started in Vietnam with World War II tactics yeah. or Korean War tactics. They don't work at all. Yeah, You know, and then you get to today where we're fighting these insurgent wars and terrorist wars, and we've started off fighting them with Vietnam tactics. Yep. Well, that doesn't work at all. You know, because the the nature of the war has changed and the nature of the technology has changed. You know, the big difference fighting with, you know, amazing technology against insurgencies who don't wear uniforms and (laughs) or as opposed to fighting where there are battle lines and large armies. You know, they're just different.
4: The next day, Lee began the long retreat back to Virginia as a summer downpour washed the blood from the grass and pelted the wounded who rode in a wagon train that stretched 17 miles.
1: And the day after the Gettysburg, when Lee is retreating back into Virginia, is the 4th of July. Yep. It Shelby Foote says a thing that I think is really interesting. He says, if you're in the South, every Southerner has the feeling of being at 1 p.m. in Gettysburg with General Pickett facing the charge. That every Southern man thinks about what would I do right. if I was in that moment. He says another thing, too, that I find really interesting, which he says, you know, there's the opening of Patton, which is a movie we have to do, um, where Patton says, Americans have never been defeated. And what Shelby Foote says, which isn't true anymore, certainly, but what Shelby Foote says is, that's strange coming from General Patton, whose grandfather was fought under General Lee. Well, the Union Army wasn't defeated, but if you were a Southerner, that part of America has been defeated. Yeah. You know? Yeah and now we have we have one of these digressions where we hear all about the women yes and we hear about how they ran hospitals and got food and helped organize things and and cared for the dead and yeah. and and did these tremendous efforts while well, it sounds like from the documentary a lot of the men were arguing and bickering and you know doing a lot of bullshit, and the women were coming in and doing the real work.
4: No conflict in history, a journalist wrote, was so much a woman's war as the Civil War. North and South, women looked for ways to help. In the North, citizens formed the Sanitary Commission and the Christian Commission to organize private relief and check the spread of disease in the army. The disease rate was cut in half. Sanitary commissioners prowled the camps demanding they be cleaned up, reforming hospital conditions, insisting on better food, making sure blankets, shoes, medicines, and packages from home were distributed fairly. Prominent men ran the sanitary commission. New York lawyer George Templeton Strong was its treasurer. But hundreds of thousands of women in 7,000 local chapters all over the North did the work. Sewing, knitting, baking, wrapping bandages, raising funds, organizing rallies.
1: And at the same time, so we've had Grant's long, long siege and attack of Vicksburg. The day after the Battle of Gettysburg, Vicksburg falls, General Grant. Yeah. It was the fourth of July. Vicksburg did not celebrate the fourth of July for eighty five years after that. Because of the law. Because that's when they that's when the city fell to the right. Union Army. Wow. Yeah. The next heading we get to in the in the story is bottom rail on top. Mm-hmm. And what we hear a lot about, the first thing we hear about is the draft, is that this is the first time that there was a draft in the United States. Right. And the big trick in the draft during the Civil War was that if you had 300 bucks, you could just buy your way out of it and yep. hire somebody else to come serve for you. Right. Strange thing where wealthy people managed to not have to serve their country in <laughs> the same way as poor people did. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing none of that has happened
3: today. (laughs) Yeah,
2: right.
4: The fathers of Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt hired substitutes. So did Andrew Carnegie and J.P. Morgan and two future presidents, Chester A. Arthur and Grover Cleveland.
1: And, of course, in New York, they had riots. Right, which we see in gangs in New York. I was just going to say, yeah, Yeah. that's gangs in New York. Um, And the interesting thing about it was because in New York, in those gangs and gangs in New York, those were the Irish gangs. Well, the people that were taking the jobs mm-hmm. for the Irish were the freed slaves coming up, so they were totally against yeah. fighting to free the slaves because they saw the slaves, which are the lower on the rung, uh, you know, group in the United
2: States, as the one who's coming to take their jobs. Wait, there were people who are majority people vilifying another race of people, claiming they're coming to take their jobs. Where have I heard that before? Well, and it's also the the the, the you know.
1: Whoever is, you know, the Irish were, you know, shit on and abused and only could get these lower rung jobs and were thought of as lesser than. And rather than turn on the people that are doing that to them, they turn on the next group that's below them on the rung. Exactly. And this is America over and over and over again. Whatever group of immigrants are coming in, the previous group of the immigrants are ready to say fuck you to them.
2: We're here first.
1: And so Lincoln has to send the troops fresh from the Battle of Gettysburg. Up to New York to stop the rioting in which hundreds of people were lynched, black churches were burned, black businesses were burned, and here are these exhausted troops from Gettysburg who have to stop rioting in New York City against African Americans. Insane is that going from one battlefield to the other. Insane. Well, and you go like, what the fuck am I fighting for? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Like I just watched all my brothers. (laughs) Yeah, I just watched all my brothers die. In order to come back and see you resisting the draft, yeah. come help me in this yeah. battle. Yeah, I can't. I, I just can't imagine that. Yeah. And at this point, I mean, Lincoln is barely holding this country together. Oh yeah. I mean, this country is falling apart in a lot of ways. Yeah. And finally, at this moment, African Americans are finally suited up in uni- Union uniforms and put into battle. Mm-hmm. And U.S. Grant said,
5: This, with the emancipation of the Negro, is the heaviest blow yet given the Confederacy. By arming the Negro, we have added a powerful ally. They will make good soldiers. Ulysses S. Grant.
1: They were paid less than white soldiers, as we hear about in Glory. Uh, I haven't seen that in a long time. Have you seen it recently?
2: Yeah. Does it hold up? Uh, s- uh, some of it does, but a lot of it doesn't. Mm. It I didn't think it held up even when I saw it back then. I loved it back in the day. Really? But but yeah, I don't... I loved everything about the black soldiers, everything with Kerry Elwes and Matthew Broderick and all that. It's just... It
3: doesn't feel
1: believable to me. Right. Yeah. Uh, But that's actually the next story that we tell in the Civil War is the actual story of the 54th Massachusetts and Robert Gould Shaw, which is the Matthew Broderick character and their attack on Fort Wagner, where they just showed tremendous courage and 40% of them were killed during this attack. And, and and this is the thing that they really go into in the documentary is that serving side by side with African American soldiers turned the viewpoint of a lot of the union soldiers around. Yeah. Yeah. And this has happened over and over again in the military. When you get exposed to any culture, all of a sudden you start to understand that culture and then it's a different approach. Well, it's particularly true. I think in the military, because you've heard like when the, the military was integrated and what effect that had right when uh women started serving yep. when now we have gays and lesbians serving Transgen- in the military transgender, yeah, and transgender and that is that you know when you're in the foxhole when you're in the battle with the person that's the person on your left yeah that's your brother yep you know you know and that's it and and because you got bullets are flying at you those those barriers go down real quick is that person gonna have my six yeah. that's all you need to know at this point, U- U.S. Grant is now put in as the commander of the entire army of the West. We go off and fight battles at Chattanooga, at Chickamauga. We meet Phil Sheraton, who's this five foot four tall uh, Union cavalry commander mm-hmm. who is brilliant and nasty and <laughs> aggressive and just seems to love battle. Yeah. Um, and Grant has just one brilliant victory after another at this time. Yeah. And again, we touch in with these interesting things, which is that the whole time of the Civil War, the Capitol Dome was being built, and at this point, after the battles of Gettysburg and Vicksburg, it mm-hmm. is finally completed, and they put that statue up on the top, yeah. and Lincoln insisted that it continued because during the war, even though it took resources, because he right. said, no, this is, this is our country. You got to remember what you're fighting for. You got to know what you're fighting for. Yep. And it's at this point that Lincoln has really come to the conclusion that God wants the whole country to pay.
5: <laughs> they really felt that Providence was at work in this war. As Lincoln said, we both prayed to the same God. We both invoked him. We both said we were on his side. But it wasn't until 1863, and indeed at the end of the war, that it became clear where God's judgment was coming down. That was on the whole country. It must now atone in blood for its complicity in wickedness, the wickedness of slavery.
1: Our next title is A New Birth of Freedom. And again, we have the same refrain of the the Civil War was fought in 10,000 places. yeah, And we realized that we are start talking about this speech and that there's gonna be a cemetery that will be commemorated at the battle, the site of the Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah. And there's a bunch of people invited and it's kind of an afterthought. They say, oh, we should invite the president too. And the president comes down in a train and there's uh, William Everett, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. And he's the main speaker, a very well-known speaker. Mm-hmm. And he speaks for two and a half hours. Yeah, two and a half hours. Yep. Well, at the time, it's like you've heard about like the Lincoln-Douglas debates. They were like five hours long. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have TV, so the whole town would come out. I guess you're like, right. Hours and hours to watch these things. Yikes. And there was a photographer who was kind of focusing, and he figures, oh, the president's going to speak. I got a lot of time to take this picture. <laughs> and Lincoln gets up and says 269 words. Yeah. And he was heading back to his seat before the photographer could open the shutter. <laughs> and this photo is fascinating to look at yeah because it's kind of out of focus in the distance
2: way in the distance you
1: just see lincoln's head just after he's delivered the gettysburg address (laughs) and lincoln thought the speech was a a failure
5: he felt that he had failed that it was a poor speech that people didn't like it was so brief less than two minutes
1: and the main speaker everett comes up to him and says that I didn't come as close to the central point in two and a half hours as you did in two minutes. Brevity is a soul of wit sometimes. Yeah. And then we hear Sam Waterston give the speech. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a good time to end with the words of Abraham Lincoln, part one of our exploration of Ken Burns' Civil War.
7: Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met here on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of it as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that their nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here but can never forget what they did here it is for us the living rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they have thus far so nobly carried on it is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth.